you're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, friends. Welcome. I'm so glad you could join me today. Brandon Rutley is my guest, and in keeping with a common adjective used to describe some of the stud guys we've had on the show lately and who've been described by guests of the show this way, my guest today is a dude, (laughs) what we might have called a stud back in the day. My guest, affectionately known as Rutley, he's a dude, and I say that for a few reasons. You know how the hot girl who doesn't know she's hot is always like 10 times hotter? Well, Rutley is that girl. (laughs) Sorry, Rut. But he truly doesn't know he is a dude. He was in town on business a few months ago, and he asked if I was free for lunch. And he starts telling me his story of how he was raised and started working on shrimp boats when he was five years old and the lacking resources, and raised by illiterate grandparents, and walking on the Nichols State basketball team as a 5'9 little white guy at the time, a program that was going to the NCAA tournament regularly. A few years prior, they had lost to the eventual tournament champion, Arizona Wildcats, so he's trying to play big-time basketball. He's showing up to a 7 a.m. basically P.E. class, hoping that the head coach gets a glimpse of him, and he happens to go off one day and gets invited to regular practice. It's an incredible story. I'm going to let him tell you the story. He does it better than me. But please stick around for the advice on how to be the best father to a girl that you can be because what he offers in this arena is huge. He read a book that I had never heard of and sent it to me over the summer And it's as highlighted now as any book that I own. I use it as a manual for how to be a better father to my daughter. So Rutley is a master relationship builder, a master networker. He's married about as well as a man can, second only maybe to me. His wife, Georgia D., I've known since I was in fifth grade, and she is the best. And I hate to share this with you, beautiful listeners, but his family could compete for the most beautiful fam on any of your social media feeds. Rutley's the family man we all aspire to be, and he's determined to make the most of what God has blessed him with, and I love that about him. So please enjoy my chat with Mr. Brandon Rutley. Rutley, really appreciate you being here, man. This is cool that you came to New Orleans. Thank you. Bradley, man, I'm excited to be on the podcast today. The podcast has given me so much, so hopefully your listeners can take a thing or two from our conversation. So I'm excited about it. Thanks for having me. That's interesting. You say you've gotten a lot out of the podcast. Which conversations resonate with you most? Man, the financial end of it, you're at different stages of your life, you know, and me approaching 40. I'll be 40 in January, which is crazy. Now in a new job, I'm making more money. I'm trying to be more financially prepared. Since I've listened to your podcast, I now have done a lot of research with people that you follow and that you you know you can communicate with, and I've started Roth RAs for me and my wife. Now putting in contributing more to my 401k. 
I've got a 529 plan, a taxable brokerage. So all of those things are recent developments over the last five, six months of just listening to your podcast and picking things off. And, you know, the next step for me is hopefully investing in real estate. And that's a big part of what you do. So I've gotten so much back from, you know, just listening to your podcast that, you know, I appreciate it. Thank you, man. Beautiful. (laughs) So the impetus for all of this was listening to my podcast? Listening to your podcast, it kind of re-engaged me. I mean, we've been friends since college, right? I mean, when I get my mind fixated on something and my mind right now is fixated on finances, I researched the heck out of it. So I knew you. I've started listening to your podcast, and I've listened to every single one of them. Um, And then that led me to the people that you had on, and that led me to other people. So right now I'm two books in the uh, finances. I've got three more that I bought and are teed up. So I I got another thing that I'm trying to be really, really good at, and it's fun. That is music to my ears. Which books had you read prior to starting to listen to the podcast? On finances? Yeah. None. None. Zero. But since then, you've read several? So the first one that I read was The Richest Man in Babylon, which I thought was just very simple, easy read, and it's just very self-explanatory. What was uh, the biggest takeaway from that book? So the biggest takeaways from the book was was just to save, you know, save your money. I, I, in all honesty, I wasn't saving like I should have been, and now I'm saving for the future. And so the book kind of put things into perspective, and then having you know, just multiple revenue streams uh, to, to follow people that actually know uh, what, they're, what they're doing, you know, hire experts to, to help you in managing and preparing your finances. So it was a good starter book for me. So what did you take away from, what was your biggest takeaway from that book? My biggest takeaway was he became the richest man in Babylon by saving 10% of his income. So I thought, well, what if I save 20% of my income or 30% of my income? Would I then be the richest man in the county? or the greater Houston area. So it just made sense to me that I could become the richest person in the county or the state or the country or whatever by saving a higher percentage of my income. And I thought it was easy for me to do because I I came from modest means and always had to be frugal out of necessity, which I know you did too, right? If you don't mind, mention a few of the other books, and then I want to get into your background and why it may be easier for you to be frugal also because yeah. of your how you were brought up. Yeah, so the last time me and you had lunch, you know, I was telling you about, you know, I'm I'm trying to, you know, interview financial planners. I really want to get one and you were like, "Man, why are you doing that? Why don't you just do it yourself?" And so I was like, "Man, you know what? He's right." And so then then I found the simple path to wealth. And that JL was Collins. yeah, and that was a simple way to put position your portfolio and buy one ETF or a mutual fund that is all of the stocks in the S&P or across the world. And so the way he structures it, it's like park it here. Here's one or two different stocks or mutual funds or EFTs that you would buy, ETFs, I'm sorry, and just forget about it and keep pumping more money into it. I think half the battle with people when they're trying to figure out their finances is one, they don't save enough. And two, they think it's more complicated than what it is. And so now that I have all my accounts set up, I just have one or two funds that I buy. And it takes all of the pain around trying to figure out which stock to pick. And and part of the book, you know, that I really like is no matter how smart you are in the long run, you will never pick 
the winners the winners you know more than the losers it's gambling it's basically gambling so why not go with the sure bet which is by vtsax and invest the heck out of that and then when you get to a certain age then you roll some of that over into to bonds and you know he says to smooth the ride. Smooth the ride. Smooth I'll put ride. a link to this in the show notes. But if you didn't get a chance to hear me and Joseph Wells discuss J.L. Collins, he talks about once you're financially independent, operating from a position of FU. Yeah. And there's a clip, and this is what I'll link to, but of he and Mark Wahlberg sitting and having a discussion about once you get to $2.5 million dollars, you do what you said, which is you have 80% of your money in VTSAX, and then you have a bond fund to smooth the ride. The reason Rutley is mentioning VTSAX and why it's so popular is because the ticker symbol is VTSAX, but it stands for Vanguard Total Stock Market Index. And the reason that people are such big fans is, one, it's broadly diversified, but two, Vanguard makes it so easy to invest. You can On the seventh of the month, this is what my wife and I do, we automatically sweep money from the money market account. And the reason you might want a money market account versus a savings account is a money market tends to pay a higher interest rate. So if you're going to have money sitting in cash, a good place to park it is in a money market if your bank has that available to you. But we sweep money into Vanguard, and then Vanguard will purchase VTSAX on your behalf. So you don't have to touch it at all. And... The reason index funds are so appealing is because they're so inexpensive. It used to be that information, financial information, that you would need to invest was kept proprietary. Mm. So it benefited you to know a stockbroker or know a, a Wall Street type that could educate you on this stuff. And a lot of people were paying 1% of their portfolio to the wealth manager. Well, nowadays, this information is ubiquitous. It's online. We can all access it. And so there's still value in a wealth manager in that they can talk you off of the ledge because so much of personal finance is behavioral. And I believe that the best indicator for how you will manage your finances for the next 70 years of your life would be best illustrated by what you did in March of 2020. If you sold everything, if you panicked, you're probably somebody who needs a wealth manager. If you were somebody who got more aggressive, that's a good sign because you you realized the transience of the moment that we were going to bounce back from what we were going through, that it was only temporary. So I do believe that you can manage your own finances Absolutely. But that's not to say that wealth managers don't have a place. But I will say if you're paying 1%, I do think that's too much. Try to work out a flat fee with them. You said that you have a 529? Yes, I actually just recently set it up with the state of Louisiana. And then they also have a K-12 through account that you can save for you know, private school, which my kids are in. All of those have different tax advantages. And I, I am just trying to figure out what the whole board is and, and, you know, trying to maximize the amount that I save to try to limit the amount of taxes that I'm paying out. And that's kind of where I am now. You obviously are far in advance ahead of me on that and can speak more articulately, but I am on the beginning side of it. I am diving in, man, and I'm excited about it. It's just, it's fun when you 
kind of are looking at something new that you really was foreign to you before. You know, my upbringing and everything. We did. We, it wasn't like uh, we were. I had someone to tell me how to save money like that, and so I, I want to get more um, educated on it so I can advise my kids and 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 you know, give them a head start on life financially. We have a 529 plan for our daughter's education also. One thing I'll say about that is if you have the funds to fully fund them now, and fully fund is an ambiguous term, but I guess what I mean by that is if you anticipate paying $40,000 for your daughter's college, Mm -hmm. if you put $10,000 in there now, because of compound interest, it would behoove you to do that versus put money in over time. So if you plan to put $600 a year, $50 a month, doing that over 10 years, well, then you would have contributed $6,000. Well, if you put that $6,000 in now, it would give it time to compound. And the, the compounding nature of money is, is amazing because if you just earn 7% on your money, that money will double every 10 years. If you earn 10% on your money, that money doubles in seven years. So if you had $10,000 that you could put in your daughter's 529, 10 years from now, that should be $20,000 as long as you earned 7% on that money. And then by the time she's 20 and ready to go to college, that should be $40,000. There you go. So you could put $10,000 in now, never touch it again, and that would probably be advisable probably be advisable versus putting smaller amounts of money in over time. It's just a matter of whether you want to do it and whether you have the funds available. But I just thought that was something to note. Another thing I'll say is the fun and excitement that you talked about probably needs to be balanced by, you need to have the the temperament to not get too action-oriented around your personal finances and investing because it's been proven time and time again. Fidelity will do these studies every 10 years or so where they see which demographic has done best in the previous 10 years. Do you know which group does best of all people when it comes to investing? No idea. Dead people. (laughs) And it's because they don't log into their accounts. They're not making trades. And they almost always do better, dead people and people who lose their password. So you have to resist the temptation to constantly be taking action because people who do better set it and forget it. You can get extremely wealthy just by saving automatically. If you have an IRA, if you have a 401k at work, I recommend anyone listening to, at a minimum, get a Vanguard account and send $100 there every month. Set it up automatically. It'll invest the money for you in index funds automatically. You will be amazed at how that money compounds over time. So just a thought. Have you a little side pot of gold going on 25 years from now. I want to get to your background. Why do you think that you are so frugal-minded? You seem to me someone who can be frugal yet still be very happy. Where do you think that that temperament or demeanor comes from? Why are you that way? I, I'm not so fixated on material things, I guess. I am more, I like experiences, so I, I will splurge on travel and 
you know, going out to eat with friends. I'm, I'm more of an experienced person. But, you know, like right now I drive a paid-off 2012 F-150 truck. And I guess I want a new truck, but I don't want the car note. Yeah. So, I, you know, those are the kind of things that do I want. You know, I don't buy expensive clothes or suits. I, you know, I just bought a couple pairs of shoes. It was like the first time I bought shoes in like five years. So I don't need material things like I think a lot of people do. But then on the flip side, I do spend money on experiences because mm-hmm. I've, you know, you, you can't really put a price on those pictures that you take with your kids. And they're only at a certain age one time. And your wife, you and your wife or you and your husband's relationship is special. So you need to have those times when you go and experience things, traveling to different places or just the company and going to eat out. So I, I, I think I think I'm a little bit in the middle. I can spend money. I just don't spend money on like material assets. So you said that a lot of this isn't stuff you started thinking about until you started listening to the podcast. Does that mean that you and your wife didn't have these discussions prior to getting married? No. So I, we, didn't, we didn't have necessarily the financial discussions. Um, with my family background, we never talked about saving as much. I wish they taught it more in school, to be honest with you. I wish they taught it in high school. I wish they taught it and drilled it in your head in college. But they just don't teach you about personal finances. And I think people go into the real world extremely unprepared for it. You know, when you get hit with, with rent and, you know, energy bills and cell phones and cars and all that kind of hits you square in the face, people build up credit cards and they build up all these things. Uh, and then before you know it, it's, it's piled up on them. And, then, you know, now we're in a society where you have to keep up with the Joneses. You have to get this new thing. You have to go on this trip. You have to have the perfect Instagram picture in wherever it is, Fiji, you know, I mean, that's what everybody does, right? So the temptation is extremely hard, but we've, you know, we don't have any credit card debt, you know, we don't have any of that stuff. Uh, We have very little debt in general. We just, I'm getting to a point where now we're, you know, I started a new career five years ago. I'm I'm making, you know, more money. Money's not everything, but I'm making more money. Much more. Double? Uh, (laughs) You were in athletics administration, so you were the assistant athletic director at an FCS, FCS school, what yeah. used to be called 1AA. Yeah. So you make considerably more money? Is that fair to considerably say? Considerably more, yeah. I would say like four times as much as I made there. Four times? Okay, so I said double and you were thinking, <laughs> double, bro, that's nothing. <laughs> no, I make four times as much. Okay, yeah. so yeah. you were raised by your grandparents, correct? Yeah, yeah. Why is that? So my mom and dad were 17 and 18 years old when they had me. They just weren't really prepared to have a kid and my grandparents you know kind of took us uh having a brother who's eight we 17 months apart so it was he was came right after me and we just lived with my grandparents your parents did too or no no not my parents my parents didn't live with us my mom and dad got a divorce early on too so they married for a couple years and got a divorce and we just we just lived with my grandparents until we were older and by the time my parents were ready to take us back we had we had just been accustomed to living with our grandparents, and you know it still worked. My dad's a part of my life. My mom's a part of my life. Had um, they always been throughout that ordeal? Had they all? Um, not so much. You know, I think you know my dad probably wasn't as much. My mom was a little bit more. My dad lives in in Lafitte, which is south of New Orleans. So he's a commercial fisherman, and so is my grandfather. Um, so they worked a lot. You know, mm. they worked a lot, and so I didn't get to see him as much when I was young. But he's you know, part of my life now, we spend some time together. 
But when you were a kid, did you see your mom once a week, once a month? I would say every day or every oh, other okay. day. She didn't live far from us. She remarried. So my stepdad was a big part of my life in playing sports. He played, he played basketball in high school, and he kind of taught me how to play sports. So they were a very significant part of my upbringing. I just lived with my grandparents because that's who I lived with for the first five or six years of my life. And so you have just one sibling? So I have a brother, and then I have two half-sisters. Uh, so my mom remarried and had a daughter, and then my dad had a, had a daughter. Your stepdad, did he come to the marriage with any kids? No, he didn't. Okay. No, so my and they, Are they still married today? Yeah, yep, they Wow, are. so they've been married 39 years. Yeah. Wow. They've been married ever since. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. What did your grandfather do? He was a commercial fisherman? Yeah, so he was a shrimper. Uh, here in South Louisiana, there's, you know, a, a group of people that are, are Cajun French. Yeah. Um, and he's one of them. I guess his ancestors came down from Nova Scotia way back in the day. And he was one of, I believe, 12 brothers and sisters. And uh, so he's a commercial fisherman his whole life. So we, uh, when the shrimp season was good, we went on vacation. And when it wasn't, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> was there any way to project whether or not it would be a good season? There's little myths and legends. And, you know, there's some people that go out and try to go and beat the game warden and go test, you know, pull a test trial to see what catching in certain areas. And, you know, you at risk of getting a ticket and having all your stuff confiscated. But, you know, they always say if it was, you know, a certain temperature or if this was, you know, the wind blew here during the course of the year and it made the shrimp grow bigger and you had a better catch. So there's all kind of little myths and legends, you know, to try to predict it, but nobody could ever predict it. And what does it depend on? Is it the weather primarily? Yeah, I think so. If it's hotter, I guess if it's hotter, the shrimp grow faster. So you want bigger shrimp. So the smaller the shrimp are, the, the, the less you get per pound for shrimp. Obviously, the bigger you get, the kind that you buy, get in casinos, the jumbo shrimp, uh, those are more expensive uh, to buy. So therefore, they pay the shrimpers more to catch those. When is shrimping season? So there's two different shrimp seasons. There's the May season, which is, which is you know, right in May. It lasts a month? It lasts like a month or two. And then there's the August season, which has just started this week, and that lasts for a couple months into the wintertime. And so that had to force some budgeting, right? Was he only making a decent income for three out of 12 months? Yeah, it does. So you, yeah, you get, you know, you make a lot of money for three or four months, and you have to live on that for you know, X amount of months after that till the next shrimp season starts. Shrimpers kind of supplement their, their money. They can do crabbing or you can do oystering or some people even fish for just different drum and redfish and sharks. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways that you can live off the land. What was the name of his boat? Oh, man, he's had like 30-something boats. Oh, wow. Um, I would say the one that sticks out in my mind the most was called the Nightwing, and it was a big, like, 50-foot boat. It was a steel hull. I mean, it was huge. And so did he, did he finance that the same way you would a mortgage? Yeah, yeah. So it's just like you would a house. You finance it just like a business. And, you, you know, you form a relationship with the bank and you just pay it off over time. Yeah. I used to travel to New York City for work quite a bit. And my favorite question to ask taxi drivers was, what's, what's the going rate of a medallion nowadays? Because they used to pay for their medallion, which enabled them to work. It's like a license. They would pay for that the same way you would a mortgage, and some of them were buying these medallions for, let's say, $100,000, 
when I the first time I ever went to New York City. Well, by the time I was traveling there in 2012, 2013, they were a million dollars. Wow. Yes. And I promise those guys never imagined that an Uber would come along. So some of those guys really got left holding the bag at a million dollars. I would love to know what they're worth now. If somebody would mind, wouldn't mind sending me a, a DM on Instagram or Twitter and let me know what does a taxi medallion in New York City go for these days. I guess, of course, now you can Google it. I still get caught asking Googleable questions. That's pretty <laughs> dumb of me. But what was your grandfather's education level? So he didn't know how to read or write, or he still doesn't. He's still alive. So he doesn't know how to read or write. He, you know, when he was navigating to different places, he knew that McDonald's by the logo. So he, you know, he relied on us a lot. But as far as not being able to read or write, he was as smart as you can be with money, though. Um, So he kind of knew the finances and being able to, the bartering system, which is crazy because, so why he doesn't know how to read or write when you were back in in those days when it was you know poverty stricken the whole family worked to support the family so you didn't go to school you just went straight to work and so fast forward to when you know I'm I'll be 40 years old in January when I was in middle school there was a time when if your family were shrimpers you could get let out of school early in May to go make the shrimp season so you took all your exams like a month ahead of time to be able to participate and help your family in the shrimp season. So now they don't do that anymore. You have to go to school the whole entire time. But just to give you kind of the last, you know, let's say 80 years, people, really the whole family worked to support themselves. And then, then it kind of gradually went to, you know, where, where you had to go to school. So that's why he could never read? He just yeah. wasn't in school enough to learn? He wasn't in school. Back, back in those days, it was you go straight to work when you're able you know, when, mm-hmm. when you're, I worked on the shrimp boat with him since I was like three years old. So I would go in the summertime. I'd go on weekends. I was always, so imagine him, you know, back in the forties, they just went straight to work and just worked their whole entire lives after that. You know, When's the first it? time you received money for your work? I would say maybe probably five years old, uh, five or six. I mean, I always had cash money. That was the beauty of it. So commercial fishermen always operate with cash money. And so you got what's called a share, you know, so everyone who's the deckhands or the employees, uh, based on what you catch on that trip, it's broken up with a share. So I think the way my grandpa used to do it was half went to the boat. He got 25 percent and the rest was split up amongst the deckhands. I probably got less, but, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that is so cool. So did you think that you were going to be a fisherman when you got older? So I think it was a little bit, it was expected that you may continue in like the family business. I think it started to end around the time I was getting out of high school. And it started to end, meaning in your mind that you would probably do something else? I think in everyone's mind. You know, back in South Louisiana, which is where I'm from, there was a huge oil and gas population of workers, right? So back in the, you know, the 80s, the oil and gas uh, business tanked. But in the 90s, it was like blowing and going. So you can make a lot of money without going to college, right out of high school, going to be a roughneck offshore working 14 and 14 or 21 and 7. You can make a ton of money. So you didn't have to go to school. So there was, do I go and become a commercial fisherman? Like it's 
was born. It's in my blood. I love doing it. Yeah, I can make good money. Do I go into the oil field or do I go to college? It was just starting in the late 90s, the early 2000s. That way of life is kind of dying off. My grandfather speaks Cajun French. Not many people speak it anymore. I didn't pick it up. I wish I would have. So that kind of way is, is, is just the commercial fisherman is kind of dying off. What's taken its place? So foreign imports. You know, mm-hmm. China, they raise shrimps and farms, and then they blast the market with it and at dramatically you know, discounted prices. There's even some domestic farming that goes on. Just to give you like an example, an 80 to 100 count shrimp, which is there's 80 to 100 of those per pound. When I was, let's say, 18 years old or 17 years old, that was maybe like a dollar twenty-five a pound, a dollar ten a pound. Now it's probably thirty cents. So inflation, right? Price of fuel, price of everything to fix your vessel, the price of ice, all of that has gone up, but the price of shrimp has reduced by seventy-five percent. So it's it's a dying kind of way of life, unfortunately. I'm sure it happened gradually. Those guys had to get other jobs. What did they go into primarily if oil and gas wasn't as popular of a thing to do and then shrimping is basically being outsourced to China? What what kind of jobs did they get then? Other commercial fishing type jobs like crabbing, uh, stuff like that. Because that's not done in China as much? No, I, to my knowledge, I don't think they can farm raise those shrimp, those crabs as much. Maybe they can, but it'd be a different type. Uh, shrimp is... A little bit more easy to do that. Yeah, so you did that or you just went in some you know, laborer's type, type of job. If you don't have a, a college education, there's nothing against people that don't have college educations, but you're just more limited. And I think that was a big deciding factor for me to go to college was I didn't want to have limitations. You know, I saw family members that got laid off and they stuck trying to find a job. That stuck out to me when, when they were out of work and couldn't find a job because they didn't have a college degree. Ernest Porter? That name ring a bell? Yes, Ernest Porter is a guy that I played basketball with at Nichols. And he was somebody that I wouldn't say I was a great friend with or or anything, but when I started college in 2000 and I wanted to walk on the basketball team and Ernest was a scholarship player on the team and he came from Port Allen High School. He was a starter on the Nichols State University basketball team, which is where I went to college. And so... Once I got to school, I had issues with trying to get on the team because they didn't have tryouts. Now, this is 2000, so Nickel State University went to the NCAA tournament in 95 and 98. They lost to Virginia in 95. In 98, they lost to the Arizona National Champions, the uh, Mike Bibby and Miles Simon and Jason Terry. So Nichols was, like, on the top echelon of programs in the Southland Conference and mid-major. So I wanted to walk on. I went there. I wasn't having success getting in with the coaches. They weren't giving me the time of day. And I just kept going back and back and back and back until one day I just waited outside of Coach Ricky Broussard, who's the head coach, legendary coach at Nichols. You waited outside his office? Waited outside his office. And I said, I want to play on the team. And he said, Little Rutley, you're not good enough. And I said, Coach, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll be a manager, whatever. I just want to be around it because I loved basketball. And he said, well, go register for my 7 o'clock basketball class, which that was back then you had you could take certain PE hours and they had a basketball class. So 
Coach Broussard was the lowest paid Division One coach in all of Division One, and so to supplement his salary, what did he make? I think he made fifty grand. That time in the early two thousands, the salary should have been a hundred, ninety five, ninety a hundred. That's what the other members in the conference were probably making. So he taught this basketball class, which he really didn't. He'll tell you today he didn't really go much. He just rolled the basketball out and went in his office, but that's what he did. So he said join that class, and in that class was a guy by the name of Ernest Porter. And he knew me, and he kind of took me under his wing a little bit, and I said, Ernest, I'll do whatever it takes to get on the team. And he says, well, I'm going to talk to Coach about you. And there was, I'd say, about two or three weeks into the class, Coach Broussard came to one of the classes, and I just played lights out for like an hour straight. You knew he was there that day? I knew he was there that day, and I, I knew that was my shot. I had a feeling. Adrenaline was spiked to the roof? It was spiked, and I was like, if there's going to be any time, it's going to be today. And I just went off for like 30-something points, and I couldn't miss, and I was getting steals and making passes and just playing out of my out of my mind. How tall are you? I'm 5'9", man. I'm not tall at all. You a white dude? I am a white guy. <laughs> I can't jump very high, but I can shoot. What player from the NBA most resembles your style of play? I would say Steve Nash, but back when I played, it was more set plays, and it wasn't like it is today, where you can kind of run up and down and shoot like Steph Curry when you cross the free throw line. Yeah, or Nash would would dribble around the basketball goal and find somebody cutting from the free throw line to the basket, things like that. You don't see much of well, you didn't see that much of that until him, probably. Correct. And when he kind of when he played for the Suns, that was on the front end of playing up tempo and playing where you pass and you shoot threes and you're scoring at a high level. And I mean, we had like a hundred set plays. I was a up tempo guard where I went to high school, and I had to slow down, and that was a big, huge change for me. So. You didn't consider going to JUCO, junior college? I did. I did. I actually had a girlfriend that was in Nichols' nursing program. She was a year ahead of me. And I ultimately decided to come to Nichols and try to walk on just because... You thought you were going to marry her. I thought I was going to marry her. Yeah, a lot of people from down here meet their wives when they're 13, 14 years old. Yeah. Okay, so you show up at Nichols. You have a set class schedule, but you learn about this 7 a.m. basketball PE sort of class. You sign up for that class. You had to arrange all your hours, I imagine. Yeah. You show up to this class every day, understanding that it's the head coach of the basketball team, that it's his class, but he's not there. But you get this one shot, and he sees you play, and what happens next? When you look at certain time periods of your life that actually change the trajectory of your life and career, this was like one of the first ones. So after that game, he walked up to me and he said, man, you played out of your mind. I need you to be here at 3.30 for practice. Did he watch intently, sit in the stands? He watched intently sitting in the stands. And Ernest was sitting like right next to him, kind of Mm, talking you up, talking me up. Why would he do that? Wasn't he afraid that you might take his starting job, or were you a point guard and he was a shooting guard kind of thing? He was a shooting guard, and he, at the time, I didn't know this, but they – they had a walk-on guard that didn't show up to campus or something like that, and they had an open spot. And so they had limited numbers. And so at the point guard position, if you only have two, you know you need three or four. So I, it just so happens I didn't know that at the time, but they needed someone, another body at practice. And I was a walk-on. I was a local guy. So it always helps when you 
bring on local people for fan support and whatnot. But yes, I knew it was an important day. I did not know how big of a day it was. And, and so he came up to me and he said, I need you to be at practice. This is your shot. Don't F it up. And I'll never forget those words. So you know, practice as as was lived. later that day? It was later that day. And so I showed up and at the beginning of, so this would be like October-ish, September, October-ish. And you start to condition at the beginning of the season. And so I was nowhere near in shape. I was in pickup basketball shape, not in Division One basketball shape. And I think I threw up green that day. Yikes. It was bad. And the assistant coach, Quinn Strander, who I am very close friends with today, he told me, I told you you weren't good enough, little Rutley. And that just fired me up even more because – he saw me at a vulnerable time and thought I was going to give up. He basically said, you should just quit now. And that's the kind of coaching that I actually respond better to. When you tell me I can't do something, like I'm going to play, I'm going to try even harder. That first couple of months, and then I got in shape and I was, you know, I hit my stride. And, and then, you know, I played for three years after that. So it was really a tremendous experience and a changing point in my life to be able to not only go to college because no one had ever been to college in my family before, but to play Division One sports. That's incredible. So tell me about how you knew you were going to get to wear a uniform for game day. When did that happen? So my first year, I redshirted. So you go out to practice in October, you're throwing up, but they needed somebody so that they could intra-squad, right, play against themselves. Right. So you kind of served as a, a practice squad guy. You redshirt, which means? Yeah, so redshirt means you basically practice and you don't lose a year of eligibility. You come back and you're a freshman two years in a row. And it is very important, I think, for every sport in Division One, if you can take a walk-on year. If you're not an immediate contributor right away, you take a walk-on year. And you mean a redshirt year? A red, yeah, a redshirt year, excuse me, to where you sit out and you get bigger and stronger. And you, the game slows down for you after a while because I was good in high school and I played on a really good high school basketball team, but college is the best players in high school. Everyone's faster than you. Everyone's taller than you. Everyone can shoot just as good or better than you. So you have to adjust to that game. What made you think that you could compete at that level? Why were you so confident? I think I tricked myself, man. I have an underdog mentality, a walk-on mentality, just in everything I do and the way I approach things. And I just thought I was a Division One basketball player. Was I really? Probably not. But I, my effort that I put out was way past a Division One athlete, in my opinion, because I just I had to play harder. I had to show up. had to be the first one there. I had to be the last one to leave. I had to try to win the line drills, you know, when you're running and conditioning. All of those things, you have to put in effort, extra effort if you're a walk-on because you're not guaranteed a spot tomorrow or the next day or the next year. You're basically the guy who has to pick up the basketballs at the end of practice and go get this, go get that. You're like a manager, but you get to practice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no scholarship offers out of high school? No, I had some smaller Division II, Division three schools where I was going to be offered some small financial aid, and it was way far away, and I just didn't want to do that. I decided to take the walk-on route. Once you realized that you could make the team at Nichols but not start, presuming you didn't start every game, did you consider transferring to get more playing time at a D2? 
I did. I did. I toyed around with it a little bit, and I just I felt comfortable at a place like Nichols. It was a smaller school, smaller classrooms. In my second or third year, I started to realize that, hey, I wasn't a superstar. And I think most people don't get that. They think that, hey, you know, I need to be starting or playing this many minutes, and they transfer. Like in today's game, and it's – thousand transfers a year in division one basketball it's it's just unbelievable is that the number There's it's a it's some, it went from 500 to you know between 500 and a thousand a year which and is unbelievable why is that do you think it's social media driven or narcissism or what 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 is your opinion for why there's so many transfers nowadays i was also in athletic administration so this was between 2010 and 2017 for seven years, I was the number two person in the athletic department. And there was a study that I saw that I read on that was performed with all first-time freshmen in all of Division One in every sport. And they polled them and they said, how many of you think you're going to play professionally? <laughs> Let Men, me guess. Men's basketball. 100%. No, you're wrong. 99% <laughs> men's basketball. Wow. Football was like 97 even women's basketball was like 75%. So you just have this perception that you're going to play pro. And when you're not good enough, because we can't take that we're not good enough, when you still can't come to terms that you're not good enough, you're like, it's the coach's fault, somebody else's fault, right? It's not mine. And you transfer somewhere else. And so with social media, one person that you went to high school with is at a Division One school and he decides to leave, you're like, well, man, I didn't play much. I might transfer too. And so-and-so's doing it. And then you, you take the one like positive example of a person who transferred and made it to the NBA, and that's what everybody uses. The reality of it is most people will not be go to the NBA at any level. It's a very small amount of people that actually go and play professionally, even if it's in Hungary or somewhere overseas in Russia making $20,000 a year. To me, that doesn't mean that you made it. That just means that you're playing professionally in the lowest league in, in the world. But that's what people that are invested in the sport, they want to be pros. I talk about my best buddy from high school quite a bit. He played at the University of Texas. And one of his teammates told him that because he wasn't getting a lot of playing time as a junior that he ought to consider transferring. And he did transfer and played at UL Lafayette as a shortstop and was drafted in the 34th round. They gave him $1,000 to sign and shipped him off to Podunk, Indiana, or wherever. And what prompted me to bring him up is that he was given an opportunity to play in Japan for Bobby Valentine for one year and made the league minimum of Japanese Major League Baseball. And that league minimum set him up really well for the next, say, 10 years, enabled him to buy a house and establish his family with his lovely wife, Sarah. And so I have a kid now that I coach weekly. He and I discuss his future, and he's still chasing the dream and has had opportunities to play in places like Australia, Czech Republic, Italy, and, uh, and he won't do it. And it's been primarily because he believes, and rightly so, that the mecca of baseball is in the States. And so it's hard for him to take himself out of 
the premier place to be for one year. But I'm of the opinion, I'm like, dude, knowing what I know now, not taking advantage of an opportunity to live in a place like Czech Republic, regardless of what you're doing, add to that the fact that it's being paid for. I'm like, man, you got to do this. You'll regret it the rest of your life. Well, maybe he won't if he doesn't experience it, if he never knows what it's like there. But so we have this conversation a lot. He needs to take that opportunity and go play overseas if he's going to hang around and stick with baseball. I gave it up at age, what, 23. I had a chance to be a free agent and sign for a thousand bucks, but it wasn't something I was willing to do. I felt old and felt like the mature. I kind of always prided myself on being precocious, like older than my years. I felt older than my years. And at that age, at 22, 23, I felt like I was too old and wanted to get on with my career and felt like if I stayed in it for another three or four years and played pro ball, that I would be sacrificing years that I could be building my career and building wealth. And the first book that I read when I got out of college was The Richest Man in Babylon. So I'm <laughs> like, how do I start saving 10% of my income? So, Well, you were way far in advance ahead of all of us in college. You're an old soul, Brad. <laughs> I, yeah, I am. But I had to be. That was forced upon me yeah. in a lot of the same ways as you, right? So... Yeah, I'll say what I'll say about that specific thing and about planning. I'm not against somebody going and try to chase in their dreams. You see it too many times where there's pressure on these young kids, whether it be football or basketball, from their family, right? To say that you're good enough to go play so you can kind of take care of the family. And so I think there's a lot of pressure that's placed on them to do it. And when they really come to the realization that that's not what they're going to do, they feel kind of like a failure. So I would say if somebody's going to chase their dreams, chase it as long as you feel you'll be fulfilled with no regrets. But too many people don't make a backup plan. And I think they go all in and they're like, this is the only thing. But like you can go all in and have a backup plan. Well, I think kids are being supported by their parents later and later in life, like as they get older and older. Remember Obamacare was going to cover kids until they were 26? That kind of resets the age at which people consider themselves adults yeah when you and i were coming up when we were 11 12 13 it was 18 was an adult i was cut off (laughs) right myself included yeah and that makes us different that made us walk-ons who had to figure a lot of things out for ourselves which breeds a certain maturity how do you think that experience as a walk-on benefited you later in life like once you got out of college and started in the real world So I started, when I went to college, I was so unprepared, it wasn't even funny. When you play Division I sports, it's more of a job. I'll give you one just typical day. So 5.36 a.m., you're going to run stadiums, and you're doing that for an hour, and you're sweating your tail off. And then you go take a shower, and you go to class all day until lunch. And then you go to lunch, and around 2 or 3 o'clock, you're at practice for two, three, maybe four hours if a coach is having a bad day. (laughs) Or, or if we're having a bad day, right? And then you, you, you take another hour off, and then you're in study hall until you get X amount of GPA. And you rinse, wash, repeat that every day for an entire year. You know, it kind of molds you similar to, I guess, what the military would be. It teaches you how to be a team player. It teaches you how to be selfless because it's not about you. It's about the team. So you got to learn your role, right, or you're going to get cut. If you think you want to shoot the ball every time and you're not good enough, you'll get cut. I mean, that's just part of it. So it teaches you so much, not just a walk-on, but Division One athlete. And 
I had three goals going into college. One was to graduate from college. The second was to play basketball and to be a, be a Division One athlete. And the third was to gain a scholarship, right? I, I always saw those videos on, at the time, not on social media, but ESPN, of the coach walking in and saying, man, you know, Brandon Rutley, you got a scholarship, you know, in your senior year. I got to see that to my close friend uh, Shane Bodian, who you know. He was a walk-on. He got rewarded a scholarship in his senior year, which was awesome. But I never had a chance to do that. And so I got two of the three, which I think is pretty awesome. But it took a lot of just persistence, and I, I didn't get to experience college like most of my college high school buddies and party all the time. I I did my fair share, but I was I was doing a lot of practicing and working on my craft and whatnot. Yeah, so how did those transferable skills benefit you? So the discipline, the time management, did you feel like when you got into the real world that those habits and the skill set and the discipline and all that that you had differentiated you and enabled you to be, you went into sales after Mm -hmm. college, correct? Did that make you a top salesperson? Yeah, so... I, when, when I was in administration, and we'll, I guess we'll get to that in a little bit, but we always said that student-athletes are twice the student because you have to do all those things that I just said, right? So you're not just going to class, you're hanging out with your buddies, like you're doing all this stuff. So it, over the course of four or five years, it can mold you into a certain type of person. So I'll never forget this as long as I live. I guess it would be the second big thing that affected me later on in life. I was late for study hall one day. And a coach by the name of Chris Oney, who's the head coach at Pearl River Community College, he's, like, been the top 10 in the country the last three or four years. Phenomenal coach. But he was very young when he coached me. I was late, and he made me run for, like, four hours straight. And I lost, like, 10 or 15 pounds of water weight. So, till this day, I can't be late for anything. Mm. My stomach starts to hurt. So, since that day, I was never late for pretty much anything in my life. When you report for baseball in the fall, you're allowed to practice, I think, two hours a week or something until the actual fall season begins. And we had a set schedule every day in August when we reported to campus. And then I guess the fall season started and something changed to where we started working in individual groups. So I was put with three other outfielders for individual work. And I think I was supposed to go and check the schedule. Well, I didn't, and I showed up for my old time. And this is, you know, I had been on campus not long at all and showed up, and and the hitting coach said, he looked at his wrist and was like, you're supposed to be here at 2 o'clock. And I said, I know, I'm so sorry. I, I thought I was still at 240 or 320 or whatever. And he goes, you can start running. And I did, and he didn't tell me to stop for a very long time. And it's always awful when you don't know when you're going to get to stop. So I had that experience too, and I still to this day have nightmares about that instance. It's like some people dream about showing up to class in their underwear. I still am late for practice, and it feels like a nightmare, like no way this happens on the first day of real practice in the fall but that happened to me yeah no I mean I can relate it's it sticks with you and it's it's a shame that coaching in today's world players are not as tough as they were whenever we played and even before that you've got to handle them with kid gloves 
and you can't be as hard on them as as our coaches were hard on us and you hurt people's feelings and all that and I think you lose some of that it's still some discipline obviously coaches got to have discipline don't get me wrong but to say that you're going to get that level of oversight and to be able to take you from a rough person to mold you into what they want you it's harder to do that in today's world in any sport I wonder if it's not because we're so far removed from war, so far removed from any sort of conflict where you would need to embody more masculine qualities. And I say that because obviously men are losing testosterone where our young men are less masculine than what they were even 20 years ago. And I just think, and and a lot of this thought process stems from reading the lessons of history and how war is the history of the world and how it, it toughens you and requires discipline. But we're living in a, in a nerf, you know, the parameters of our world have been nerfified. There, they've been, everything's been cushioned, every blow we're coddled and protected and, and you almost have to force yourself to struggle, which is why I, I think you see a lot of people getting involved in CrossFit and Tough mutters and trying to find struggle because we have it so good. And so it, it makes sense that 70 years removed from World War II, two generations hence, that we'd have young boys that lack toughness and discipline. And, and what happens is women get more masculine and the men get more feminine and it's i just hate it i i I so hate it so you know as a parent you want your kids to have a better life than you did and you want to protect them from all of the dangerous hazards there is in the world sure i think from the time we grew up to the time now and i would say even before for that parents are more involved in their kids lives and protecting them and they're not able to take the criticism because they didn't get it as much. Maybe they weren't, parent tried to be strict and they were laxed on them and they were allowed mm-hmm. to do things that maybe our parents didn't allow us to do. And a little bit of that, I think, plays in it today because kids, you just can't tell them much, I guess, today. Not you can't tell them as much. You can't be as hard on them as you as our parents were hard on us uh, right. and coaches, if you follow me what I'm saying. I do, and I don't like that. Don't you think that men have sort of abdicated their leadership role to where women take more of the lead in disciplining even young men. Of course, a lot of the problem is that fathers aren't around as much as they used to be. But I'm afraid, too, that when you have a woman who is doing the disciplining, it's just not the same. And, I'm, of course, that's why I'm a big proponent of, of young boys need a mother and a father. But when the father is not doing what he should be doing in disciplining kids, it leaves the mother to do it. And I just don't think they, they're going to do it the same way. And, and just alluding to something you said earlier about Coach Quinn and how he challenged you and that motivated you. Like, don't tell me I'm not going to be – I can't do something. I'm going to figure out a way to do it. Well, women wouldn't have said that to you, but a man would say that to you. Boys respond more to challenge, whereas girls respond more to praise. Well, we have 
so many boys that are exposed to the feminine influence to where all throughout their grammar school years and even in high school, they have mostly female teachers. And so they're more likely to be praised than challenged, brought up in a feminine sort of way. And I'm of the opinion, too, that that most of school is set up for girls to succeed because women tend to be more agreeable and thrive in a more structured environment. And that's what school is. And so you're not going to get as many boys who thrive in an academic world because they're not, they don't obey rules as much. Where they would get their rules and discipline and structure is, is from that male influence, that mentor and apprenticeship when they get older, um, going into the military, learning to fight, all of those things. And we're getting away from it. And I'm afraid it takes something like a catastrophe to toughen people up and it wouldn't be something like that's happened in the past year and a half with covid because all that did was send people to their couch to watch netflix it wasn't something that you could really battle and of course covid's taken its toll on our mental health and now we're starting to see athletes back out because of mental health that's not something we've ever seen before i'll be interested to see if that starts to affect men and if the media and the society at large have the same reaction. If, if a boy or a man decides that he needs to back out of a tennis tournament or gymnastics because of mental health reasons. Yeah, I think mental health is something that's, yeah, obviously, it's been going on for a while, but it's very much magnified. And I really truly believe that social media has fueled the fire because now... If you don't get the likes on your picture or if you don't, uh, someone doesn't comment that you're pretty, you start to think, man, maybe I'm not pretty as everybody else. Or I'm, or if I'm the guy, maybe I'm not as cool as everybody else. And I think it has long-term effects on us mentally. And we crave that approval, right, from all of our peers, from our family members. And so these more of our lives are being put on social media. And it's having this really negative effect on us, man. I think just Simone Biles and all of this stuff, it's like the, the media back in the day was a reporter, right? And you got to see yourself on TV one time. Now, if the right tweet happens, I mean, you're across all platforms in the whole entire world. And that is a tremendous amount of pressure on a person. And if that happens to you and it goes viral and you've got everybody texting you and calling you and dogging you out keyboard warriors that don't know you that are talking smack that can have some effect on you so i think man it has social media has a lot to do with the negative mental health crisis that we have and i just don't know if it's going to improve and it makes sense that girls would be most affected by it because throughout 99.9 percent of human history if a girl or woman was ostracized from the tribe it meant certain death, mm-hmm. right? So women had to have the approval of others, the validation. You had to be likable in order to stay with the tribe because police forces are only 200 years old. So they needed that protection and provisioning that's not needed nowadays. But we're hardwired. If we've been a certain way as, as humans for 99% of human history, 
it only makes sense that we still have that hard wiring and you introduce this technology where all of a sudden we can possibly be berated by a hundred thousand people or a million people or in the case of Simone Biles millions and millions of people who are depending on her I don't know if I could take that mentally and humans aren't wired to take that mentally so it's a new world it's so interesting what you're talking about how do you think about social media usage from the perspective of your own daughters is that something that they're starting to ask about and want to get an Instagram account or even a cell phone that's something that I think about a lot I don't want them to be exposed to it too early. They all have iPads and they watch YouTube, which I have certain parameters. They can watch certain shows in their age range, but they don't have any social media accounts yet. They don't have cell phones. They do have like an iPod that you could, I guess, text a friend or something on there, but they don't have access to the internet or anything like that yet. I think that's going to be a very tough discussion to have because at one point they're all of their their peers are going to have it and I'm probably going to be the one that holds out the longest for Facebook and and all the other Instagram and whatnot because there's so many negative effects and they're so young and so impressionable you know just early on and I I just I really kind of struggle with that and I I need to do more research on what's going to be the proper way to introduce that to them and I don't want to say totally I'm against it because it's kind of a way of everyone's life at this point but like at what age is it safe to introduce it? And I think just as a parent, this could be a key topic, you know, for us in the next couple of years. Your oldest is how old? My oldest is 10. I have a 10-year-old. I have a 7-year-old and a 3-year-old, all daughters. That's tough because I think about social media being an important conversation, sex being an important conversation. Mm-hmm. At what point do you decide when they're 11 years and 3 months and 13 days old, do you say, okay, honey, today's the day we should maybe talk to our 11-year-old about sex or social media, or do you wait until they talk to you about it? One of the the things that's said in this book that you so generously sent me in the mail, I really appreciate, called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, 10 Secrets Every Father Should Know. One of the things that it talks about, which I'm such a huge advocate for, is improving communication skills. People think of communication skills as being more articulate or having an expansive vocabulary, being persuasive, these sorts of things. But it's so much more than that. And as Meg Meeker, the author of this book, Meg Meeker, MD, she talks about how you say something is just as important as anything that I just mentioned. And a few examples from the book would be if you're having trouble eliciting information from your daughter – A great question might be, what is it like being a 13-year-old right now? I just can't imagine. And and that's a great way to ask an open-ended, indirect, they don't feel attacked. It demonstrates empathy and compassion. And I just thought, that is genius. But that's the sort of thing, when I talk about working on your communication skills, that's that's the most important thing, how you say things. How is what you say going to be received? Another example in the book, from the book, is are your friends sexually active? And I'm like, wow, that is so good. Yeah. But this is a, a person who has had thousands of interactions with young girls. And I was surprised about a third of the way through that I didn't realize this, that a woman had written the book. Yeah. But this book is so valuable. And if you come from more, if you have more traditional values, as Rutley and I do, 
she is an advocate for men. She acknowledges that sitcoms and commercials generally make the man out to be the bumbling idiot and the woman the all-knowing, you know, just the, yeah. the perfect embodiment of a human, and the man is not. So she's a fan of men, and there are a few chapters in the book that I thought we could discuss if you're up for it, because I really think it benefits some of our buddies who are hashtag girl dads. Yeah. You think that's a good idea if we just chatted about Absolutely. it? Absolutely, yeah. I, I was given this book by a client. He had four daughters. I'm always trying to improve. I'm always picking people's brains on how to be a, good at whatever topic I'm trying to research on. And he was like, man, you got three daughters. You need to read this book because there's probably certain things that you're doing that you don't realize it that are going to have a negative effect on your daughters. This book is phenomenal. It's a, she's a clinical psychologist. She's done this for many of years, and she's given you real-life examples of ways that men, fathers have been successful being a father and a lot of examples on how they haven't been successful and specific things that they've done that have caused a bigger impact on their daughter's lives that they really didn't think was anything like a, a big deal or anything like that. So I, I love the book, and I'm glad we'll get a chance to talk about it. In the introduction, she talks about what my father gave me was confidence. Since I revered him, it didn't matter what he said. I believed he was right, and he gave me a belief in myself. He communicated well to me and put in her head that she could do anything that she wanted to do. She said, my father always made sure that I knew that he loved me. She's a big proponent of the man putting down rules and parameters around behavior and how regardless of whether she agrees with them, you have to trust that later in life she will come back and, and be so grateful that you put these rules in place. But those are just a few initial thoughts. I have so much highlighted just in the introduction. I mean, my dad protected me fiercely, but he protected me not from predatory boys or monsters, but from myself. I was young and too trusting of people, and he knew that long before I did. What you say in a sentence, communicate with a smile, or do with regard to family rules has infinite importance for your daughter. You're a natural leader, and your family looks to you for qualities that only fathers have. You were made a man for a reason, and your daughter is looking to you for guidance that she cannot get from her mother. I love it. Okay, so a few chapters... The chapter one, you're the most important man in her life. If you fully understand how profoundly you can influence your daughter's life, you'd be terrified, overwhelmed, or both. What did you get from that chapter? You're the most important man in her life. What I got the biggest impact was that you will influence her entire life because she gives you the authority as she gives no other man. Right, from jump, right? From jump street. Like you have such a special relationship with her that she puts you on a pedestal and so they're watching everything you do. And I got reminded of this. And this is, again, this maybe two years ago, my middle child who's seven. So she was five. Maybe she was four. It was right before she got into pre-kindergarten. And it was, was I guess, a, a nursery school that had a good curriculum. They were talking about the impact of smoking. And the teacher who knew me and knew my wife pulled my wife on the side after one day and said, hey, Mary, it was something interesting she brought up today. We were talking about how you're not supposed to smoke and smoking is bad for you. But she said her dad smokes. And so 
that kind of like hit me hard. I'm trying to think back, like, well, I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. Like, what happened? Well, come to find out, I had a buddy that came over. He brought two cigars, and it was a night where we were just hanging out on the back porch, and I smoked a cigar, and she picked that up and told the teacher in her class that I smoked. So it was like a big awakening for me that my kids are always watching, even if I'm in the backyard and I don't know it. They're watching everything I do every step of the way. And so that's a huge pressure, man, to know that your girls or boys, whatever it is, are watching every move you make and they'll remember that for a long time. That was a wake-up call for me. It's just interesting to go through that and, and to know that that potentially impacted her perception of me. Yeah, she talks about the fact that you can fight her peers for influence. Music, movies, magazines, their enormous influence that shape what girls think about themselves, what clothes they wear, and even the grades they get. But their influence doesn't come close to the influence of a father. And there's a lot of research that's been done to demonstrate that young girls, for example, toddlers even, are, that are securely attached to fathers are better at solving problems. Six-month-old babies, which is the age of my daughter now, they score higher on tests of mental development if their dads are involved in their lives. What age did you start reading to your daughter? Is that something that you guys do regularly? I didn't really do that regularly. I'd say my wife read more to them, maybe more like princess-type books and just kid stuff that, that we would read before they would go to bed or something like that, but nothing educational, I guess. I could do a better job of that, I would say. What about your daughter's self-esteem? How do you think about developing their self-esteem or helping them to develop self-esteem? So they're always looking for approval from their dad. And you have to encourage them to obviously, you know, my kids are in sports like most, you know, kids. And so it's important for me to be present, to go to practice, to be the dad coach, to go to the games. And so to give them the confidence to know that I'm always going to be there for them. I have to be heavily involved in their development, and whether that be sports or school. You know, my kids are in private school and public school compared to private school. Parents are a lot more involved in, in private school than they are in public school. So to have somebody that you know is always going to be there for you is important in the female's development and males too, but it is I'm involved, and they know that I care about them, and I'll really always be there for them. One thing I've wondered about, I've seen parents take selfies with teachers of their kids. And I've talked about on the podcast how I was always scared to be perceived as a kiss ass. How does that work with the politics of being the teacher's pet and the favorite and all that? With Not every kid is going to be able to post pictures or their parents post pictures with the teacher. How do parents think about that nowadays? I think it's the standard first day of school or parent-teacher conference. Like, it's just something I know our group of friends does, and I don't know mm -hmm. if there's any rhyme or reason behind it, but I do get how some people would be, oh, they're posting another picture about their kid or with the teacher or whatever it is. It's kind of interesting you bring that up because I know that we do it. And <laughs> it just, I didn't know that y'all do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I see it. Everybody does it pretty much. 76% of teen girls said that fathers influenced their decision on whether they should become sexually active. Is sex something that y'all talk about with your oldest? Not yet. I think 
we'll have that conversation when we're keeping an eye on the curriculum and when they have to tell us when they're going to start talking about that. And we'll have those conversations sooner before it actually comes up because it is important. And I think with my kids being in private school, we can always scare them with God, right? God and, and, and those principles and how you're supposed to save yourself from marriage. And I think that's a, you know, I went to public school and you couldn't use the God, hold, hold out for God. In, in private school, you can do that and you could scare them. And But you, you also want to do it in a way that makes them appreciate their body, right? Mm-hmm. It's a sacred thing and you don't just want to give it away to anybody, I'm going to protect that, and with and I think they reference in there even protect it with a shotgun. Yep. And, and I'm going to do that because I know that it could have bad psychological effects on her if they start at an early age or experiment or whatnot. So early on, I'm going to be, hey, you need to. You're important. You're special. You don't need to have sex or have these kind of experiences too early. There's plenty enough time to have that. You need to wait and you need to get older and get married because this is what God, this is the teachings of, the, of private school. So I, that's what the strategy is going to be. And that's what we, we hope to set a good example for her with how me and my wife interact. And even that, they watch you the way you treat the wives. And so part of this book is they're going to marry a guy who's mostly like their father. And the way you treat their mother, the way you treat them, is they're going to naturally be attracted to that type of person. And so we don't really, we don't curse. We don't have arguments in front of our kids. We're very cautious of all that. Hey, we we just don't have any arguments. We're just compatible and we get along, but we're very cautious of how we present our marriage to our daughters because we know that they're going to take that and they're going to think, they're going to know that's how it's supposed to be, right? That's how mom and dad did it. All of those things are just so important uh, to their development early on. Yep. In the book, Meeker says when she's 25, she'll mentally size her boyfriend or husband up against you. When she's 35, the number of children she has will be affected by her life with you. The clothes she wears will reflect something about you. Even when she's 75, how she faces her future will depend on some distant memory of time you spent together. Be it good or painful, the hours and years you spend with her or don't spend with her change who she is. She needs a hero, chapter two. The only way you'll alienate your daughter in the long term is by losing her respect or failing to lead or failing to protect her. If you don't provide for her needs, she will find someone else who will. And that's when trouble starts. Don't let that happen. So in the book, they talk about you have to show her that she's worth fighting for, right? And they're all, like we talked about earlier, they're always looking for your approval. And you have to set strict rules when they're going on dates or when they're supposed to be back at a certain time. All of that structure they need. And they may buck it and they may try to go against you, and they're, that's going to happen. But you have to persevere. And you have to be strict in those areas because she wants you to. She really wants you to set the tone and say, this is how it has to be. Like, I know what's best for you. And they'll appreciate it later on in life. Right. They're going to be mad. They're going to say, oh, so-and-so, my friend can leave and go wherever she wants. But you have to protect her and you have to be strong-willed when it comes to the parameters that you set. Yes. And she can't tell you how to be a father the same way your wife can't tell you how to be a man 
There's no bigger turnoff for a woman than having to tell her husband or boyfriend how to be a man. So yeah. you have to learn these things on your own. Yeah, so the hero part, I could relate. This is kind of a little funny little mini story, but during Christmas, they have this thing called a battery daddy. I don't know if you've seen the infomercial, but there's a basically a compartment that you can put all these batteries in. And for Christmas, your kids get all these toys that need batteries, right? <laughs> and so for Christmas, I bought one of these battery days. I filled it up with batteries, and I was ready. So when Christmas came and it was time to put in the batteries, they basically say, hey, Dad, can you go get the batteries? And I came out with, like, a cape, which was really like a blanket, <laughs> Uh-huh. And the batteries, and I was like, Daddy's here to save the day. <laughs> and so I was battery daddy. So what, why I'm ultimately telling them that is that's a small way of me showing that I'm here for them and I can solve challenges. And that's what, I'm. you know, when they call on me, I'm going to be there, whether it's a battery or picking them up at later night when they need me to come get them. You really have to be their hero in a lot of different ways. And it just takes a lot of stamina and perseverance to to put up with how they're going to buck you over the years. I like what you said about perseverance because you do need to be a man with enough emotional capacity, enough emotional strength for you and your wife and the whole family, and you're going to be counted on, and that's part of what leadership is. So she says in the book that a lot of troubled young women that she counsels where they had problems was the hurt that they felt from their fathers not leading or perhaps even abandoning them. That hurt stays with them. And so these girls in counseling will describe fathers who failed them or they were afraid to establish rules, which is going back to this emasculation that we're experiencing today or or men don't have the masculine capacity to not only deal with the own their own problems but be able to provide and protect and have the stamina and perseverance to not only have rules but follow through like when you set a guideline when you set a rule you have to be home by midnight do you have the perseverance the stamina to go out and get their ass when they're out at 12:30 yes leadership yeah and you have to show leadership and, I mean, we all work for companies. We have all seen good leaders and bad leaders in different aspects of our business and our personal life. And with your kids, you can't afford to be a bad leader. So if you're not a good leader, I would go read a book or figure out how to be a good leader and fix that right away because they're going to pick up on that. And if you're going to be a pushover, they're going to run all over you their entire life. And you, they need you to be strong in that area. They need you to be strict on them whether they know it or not. Yeah. In the book, she talks about these girls in counseling, how they will talk about their fathers who had too many of their own emotional struggles to deal with their daughters. And that's sad. And that's the lack of capacity that I'm talking about. Do you find that a lot of men, when it comes to daughters, will defer to mom too much because it's a a female, a a girl? I think, yeah. I think think the mom is close in a sense that they took care of them on the hip from the time they were born so when they're younger they spend a lot more time with them so the mother always they pick fights with their mother and I just see not just with my kids but other kids that are older and the dad is more of the like enforcer who comes in and like sets the tone and and so I think a lot of times mothers are take a different take that more stronger role and 
I think daughters are looking for their dads to be the one that sets the tone when it comes to rules and regulations. And obviously it's a team, right? Mm-hmm. You can't just be a one parent doing everything. It's a team deal, but there's just different dynamics with the mother and the father. They will listen. When a father walks into a room, you will notice how differently a daughter acts compared to the mother. They take you a lot more seriously, whether that's, you know, I believe it's a good thing. But take notice, dads out there, when you walk into the room, they treat you differently than the, mo- than the mother when you walk into that room. It says, here are a few pointers that all dads should have. Number one, make a plan. Your aspirations for your daughter will be clearest when she is young. When she's an infant, you know with crystal clarity what you will expect from her. Everything from what she will be allowed to say and do to whom she can date. Write it down now and keep it clear in your mind and in hers. Number two, have courage under fire. Number three, be the leader, which we've already talked about. She says, when your two-year-old daughter has a temper tantrum, put her in timeout and ignore her until she calms down. When she's 16, do exactly the same thing. And number four, don't cave, persevere, which is the exact word that you just used. Okay, chapter three says, you are her first love. So the early years of your relationship with her are crucial. Every man who enters her life will be compared to you. And then she goes on to talk about words and how important they are. I think women tend to talk a lot more than men, and I know I'm guilty of this too. I don't do a good job of stating the obvious So constant affirmation, letting her know that you love her is important. Daughters are prone to self-doubt, so you need to pay her compliments and sincerely compliment her so she knows that you mean it, that you're sincere. She says a good rule of thumb is to, to use twice as many words as you normally would, even if it means just saying things twice. So I can take a lot from that. But do you have thoughts on the chapter that is, you are her first love. Yeah, they're going to compare every man that they ever meet in their life to you. It's worth repeating, right? Yeah, and so when when you talk, you have to tell them that you love them way more than probably most people should. I mean, mo- most people actually do it. So when I get home from work, I'm kissing them on the forehead, telling them I love them. How was your day? When they go to bed, I'm telling them the same thing. When I wake up, I tell them the same thing. So it's like you can never tell your daughter too much that you love them because you want them to know it you also have to talk to them and have conversations and find out how their day is going so that you can have that open communication and so write them notes you know i'll for valentine's day or different times for their birthdays i'll write them like a handwritten note a card and the book kind of references you know you basically they're going to keep that and so i know my daughter i don't i don't know where it's at i'm sure they have every card that i've ever written them because i know they're going to cherish those those words. You know, no matter how insignificant I may think it, it is, I know to them that little extra was going to go a long way with them. And again, it's all in how you're treating them. And the whole premise behind the book is how you treat them and how you love them. They're going to choose a husband in that same way that you all those years you've given them that love. That's really powerful. I want to share a story from the book that speaks to the perseverance and the grit that is needed to be a dad. She talks about how if you are emotionally exhausted and you need to take a break, certainly do it. But to illustrate her point about grit and determination, 
She says that most parents pull away from their teenage daughters assuming they need more space and freedom, but actually teenage daughters need you now more than ever when they're teenagers, so stick with them. If you don't, she'll wonder why you left. And she says, I know this is tough stuff, but it's worth it. And then she shares this story of one father who recruited his his own will. He dug deep down to love his daughter at a tough time and, and won. So it says, when Allison started the seventh grade, she changed schools. Her family had recently moved, and Allison hated the move. When she got to her new school, she found a few classmates who shared her sour outlook on life. One of the kids' fathers drank too much. Another's mom had moved away. And so she and her friends got into quite a bit of trouble drinking and smoking dope. And then after several months of counseling and hard work, the parents decided that she needed to leave school and even home and receive treatment at a residential home for girls. And she was furious. And so she began lying and things got worse. And so her dad, who was a respected businessman in this new community they had moved to, felt terribly guilty about moving the family and wondered how he could help his daughter, Allison. So what he did was, the weekend before she was admitted to this program, he told Allison that the two of them were going on a camping trip to an island, and he said that I'm sure it wasn't exactly fun for either of them anticipating this trip because things were sour, but he took charge, and miraculously his daughter Allison packed her own things But neither of them spoke for nearly four hours in the car, and over the weekend they talked only occasionally. They went for hikes, made pancakes, and read books, but mostly they just camped. It says, nevertheless, her early high school years were tumultuous, and his relationship with his daughter still seemed strained after that camping trip. But by the time she turned 18, their relationship had turned around, and by the time she graduated college, his friends were envious of his relationship with Allison. When she was in her early 20s, Allison talked about her father and how those years were so difficult, and she felt guilty for causing her parents so much hurt. She told them she was sorry and that she couldn't believe that they had put up with her for so long. And so Dr. Meeker, the author, says, I asked her what made the difference in her life. Without hesitation, she said it was the camping trip with her dad. She said, I realized that weekend that he was unshakable. Sure, he was upset, but I saw that no matter what I did, I could never push him out of my life. You can't believe how good that made me feel. Of course, I didn't want him to know that then, but that was it, the camping trip. I really think it saved my life. I was on a fast track to self-destruction. Man, that's a powerful story. Isn't it? Just as being a parent, you don't know what period of time or what small one-weekend trip can do to influence your daughter. And so you just always have to be on your game. But I think that story just tells you that you need to have time with them one-on-one just spending time right and so I'm conscious about that because I have three daughters so most of the time we spend together but part of the book says that you need to spend one-on-one time and quality time without the mom without any of the sisters or brothers it's important that you have your own relationship with your individual daughters And sometimes I think maybe if you have multiple kids, you kind of forget about that. And that's a great story that just a small thing like that where she picked up that the dad's never going away. Like he's here for long haul. I can't shake him. I can't get rid of him. No matter what I do, he's not going anywhere. I can see I would be like, man, he's got my back no matter what I do. Eventually they're going to spin out of it like she did and regret all the dumb things that she did. But what if he had not done that? What path would she have gone on? So that's a great story. 
Yeah, there's a lot of what to do in the book, but it's also helpful to learn what not to do. So, for example, don't comment frequently on how she looks. Don't comment on your own need to diet. I guess, what is the purpose of of these don'ts, do you think? I think there's a lot of young girls who have eating disorders, right? Because I think it stems back to wanting to be like the models are in, in magazines and on TV and on social media. And so they're going to need, if they always have that marketing in their face, they're always going to have that need to be skinny. And so I think a lot of them develop these eating disorders because they're trying to look good in a bathing suit for whether it's a teenager, for a little Johnny or whatever it is. And they create this false sense of, I need to be, I need to look good. And I think they, little comments that you might make, if you look fat, they'll take that. They'll take that and they'll internalize it and they'll say, man, maybe I am fat when they might not be. So I think in the book, they talk about a couple stories about some kids that were brought in and they had eating disorders. And it was because the parents always talked about weight and always talked about working out. They ended up being really skinny and underweight, but they thought they were fat and they were always trying to chase looking like the model, which is just not, not the right thing. So you have to be very careful. Yeah, even saying things that you might think are cute about her butt or her thighs and so on, it says, do not, it will come back to haunt both of you. So never make comments about her physical appearance that way. Don't comment frequently about her clothes. Yes, you should have standards for what she can and can't wear and about makeup, but you don't ever want to communicate to her that appearance is a high priority. Probably my favorite chapter in the book is about teaching your daughter humility. How do you think about teaching your daughter humility? And why is it important? We live in a society where it's all about me, right? It's all about me, and I want to be the prettiest, and I want to be the most athletic, and it's all about social media and posting all these great things. And so to give your daughter self-confidence, you have to teach them humility, right? Like they're not the most important person in the world. They have to be able to fight through different adversities. And so to gain confidence, you have to have some humility. And so they can't always be thinking that the world surrounds and and involves around what they want, right? And that's hard. She says, in my practice, the happiest girls are always the ones who live with humility. The unhappiest girls are the ones who are most self-indulgent in their pursuit of happiness. But real joy and happiness comes from strong, healthy relationships with family, with their fathers, with friends. But yeah, so much arrogance nowadays. Oh, I just cannot stand it. And it's got to stem somewhat from chasing likes and comments on social media and perfecting their look with with filters and I, I guess it's uh, it's up to us to teach them that the world doesn't revolve around them one of the things she talks about is that when girls are able to manipulate things for their benefit and always get their way it doesn't make them happy it makes them neurotic and you really don't want a daughter who is high in neuroticism those those people are unlikable they have trouble getting along at work keeping a job they're always stressed and have high anxiety and you you need to as the the man set that example of poise and composure and 
somebody who when they when you set down rules that you're going to follow through when you punish them you are going to punish them you can't dole out a punishment and then not have the perseverance or the stamina to stick to that punishment and i remember one of my buddies saying like I don't want to punish you because it punishes me too because I don't want you in your room. I want to play with you. or You know, when I'm not at work, I want the family to be doing things, but you're punished, and that's a sacrifice that you make as the father out of love. I have a buddy whose daughter is like seven, and she's always drinking Starbucks, and my wife will say, our daughter is not drinking Starbucks until she can afford it herself. (laughs) I love that. I think that way too. It's crazy to see young girls with Prada bags and drinking $5 coffees. Yeah. You know, and that's a, I think I'm lucky. I have a wife who's very low maintenance and who, so it really is part of a team, right? It's not just the dads, but it's, you got to have a good partner that kind of values those same kind of values. And she could have a nice purse and it wouldn't even really matter to her. It's not like she has to have all the newest and greatest clothes out there. She has a lot of humility as well, my wife. And so- that's a good for me personally to have that to where mom's not always looking for that Gucci purse or, you know, Prada bag or whatever it is. That sends a wrong message as well. If you're so materialistic and your kids are seeing everything you're doing, man, it's just it's part of it. Well, of all my buddies who married well, I think you may have married the best. Um, and I told you that when you married, I knew your wife when we were in fifth grade, probably we met maybe fourth grade. And she was talked about as the girl who was going to be the most beautiful girl in town when she got older. And I say that you married well is because she is humble and just a very sweet person. So you married very well, my friend. I am what they called. I out punted the coverage. I'll kick the coverage more so than anybody. I know I didn't want to go that far, but yeah, you did. Oh man, she's great. And I did, I did get really lucky. Thankfully for me, I pursued that like a walk-on, man. I had the walk-on mentality. I had to make sure that she wasn't getting away. So, Anything else you want to highlight from the book? No, I just, look, I'm not an expert in this field. I think if you can take anything from me is that, and I'm imperfect, and I always try to get better. So, you know, I read this book, and I, I thought it was great, and I picked up some things that I could do with my kids, and it's some small things that you're not aware of. I just wanted to I wanted to share this with as many people as I can. So I routinely buy it for customer clients and friends of mine who have daughters because they may take one or two things from them that may help them out tremendously. You know, I'm definitely not an expert on, on, on this subject. I just try to get better every day. And this is one area trying to be a better dad. Beautiful. The book is Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, 10 Secrets Every Father Should Know. I'll link to it in the show notes. You can click on that Amazon link and buy it there. It is gold, pure gold. I couldn't put it down, and it's got as many highlights as as my Robert Greene Mastery or The Laws of Human Nature, those kind of impactful books that really chart the trajectory of your life in a good, positive way. And golly, I mean, it gives you so many do's and so many don'ts and so many examples that are really powerful. So kudos. Meg Meeker is a, wow, I can't wait to read some of her other stuff. It's really good, and I appreciate you calling the book to my attention and sending it to me, man, because... You are such a good, you're so good about building relationships. It's said that when you get a Christmas gift and somebody surprises you with it and they try to get something you think you might like, on net balance, you're better off if you tell that person that the receiver will be happier 
if they have told you what they want and then you get them that thing. In my case, usually like December 1st, I will tell the wife what I want for Christmas. I will have forgotten what it is that I want when the 25th rolls around and get it and I will be ecstatic. It does not matter (laughs) that that person has said what they want. We need to get better about openly communicating what it is that we want. And I believe that your life, strongly believe this, your life will be so much bigger. You'll live a bigger life, more fulfilled life, if you share what it is that you want and then let people provide that for you. Some of us neglect to realize that a lot of people get joy from giving. So let those people give to you and then be a good receiver. And all it takes to be a good receiver is just be sincere in your thanks. And I say that because you know that I'm such a big fan of handwritten personal notes. You came and took me to lunch one day a couple months ago. And a few days later, I get a handwritten note in the mail. And I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever. So that's probably why you're on the podcast today, right? (laughs) I mean, you and I, you're not like, you weren't in my wedding or anything, right? We're not that great of friends, but we're becoming great friends and and now you've gotten me this book, so I just really appreciate it, and I value our friendship, man. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I I truly believe that relationships make you make you happy, and, and your relationship with God, your relationship with your family, you know, both immediate and extended, your clients, your coworkers, and then just every person that you ever came in to walk across. You you got to build and nurture your relationships, and that to me is what I think is happiness, right? Having a lot of friends. Life is tough, man. Everybody goes through shit. Bad shit, good shit. It's how many people you have there to support you because it's just a matter of time when something bad is going to happen to you. And if you have no support system, you're you're likely going to have a tougher time to rebound from that tougher time. So I have just always thought that I need to build a lot of relationships and meaningful ones, not ones that are fake. So I wrote that handwritten letter to you because you gave me something. You gave me some financial information and stuff that could help me in our conversation, which it probably at the time you didn't realize how big of an impact it had on me, but it had a huge impact. So I did that basically say thank you. And so most people these days forget about how powerful a handwritten letter is. And I think it's a lost art, and I think it has a huge impact on building a relationship with somebody when you tell them actually how you feel yes. in a written format. I agree. When you worked as the assistant athletics director at Nickel State, one of the most interesting things, one of the most interesting part of the jobs, I think, is getting on the schedule the bigger schools for for the football team. I know that we played against Georgia and Texas A&M and Arkansas and LSU. How does that work? Who's responsible for scheduling those games with the big schools and how does that go down? So I was number two in command in the athletic department. I was an associate athletics director of external, and I was also our executive director of our foundation. So in charge of all fundraising, marketing, I took on more and more responsibilities. So one of them was scheduling, and the AD gave me free reign to go out and schedule games, right? So it's a big part of our budget to play these football game guarantees where you would get anywhere from let's say $400,000 to $600,000. So you knew that going in. Hey, if I can get Arkansas on the schedule, we're going to get a big payday? Yeah. It's just understood. Correct. Correct. And before I took over, and I love the AD that was there before, he's still a close, dear friend of mine, we didn't really have much of a strategy, meaning we would go play a game, 
for 400 but we wouldn't factor in the expenses so to fly a whole football team and all the fans it's like you got to charter a plane that's like $150,000 you got to stay in hotels you got to do so our net was like let's say 200 after all that expenses so I was like let's play SEC schools that we may be able to bus to spend 50 and make instead of 400 let's go play for 550 and we can basically pad our budget and you know be able to pay our coaches more and buy more gear and do all these things so i actually pen and paper right i'm like hey look our profit margin if we take this strategy will you let me go do it he let me do it so i mean you just call the counterpart at the bigger schools and you so arkansas was one where actually our ad had a relationship but i reached out to him he responded we were able to get that game scheduled all these games take place uh scheduling wise four and five years before you play them so you when you schedule like an lsu in football you're scheduling from today if i was scheduling a game we probably wouldn't play lsu to like 2025 26 at the earliest and so relationships are most important as to whether or not you get that game on the schedule it has a lot to do with it so there was one game that i actually got with a king cake they're the like universe, giving a king cake. giving a king cake mardi so gras. Here, here in south louisiana during mardi gras man they have a cake that's the best thing in the world they come with all kind of different fillings and i found out that the guy who was in charge the senior associate ad of football at georgia was from louisiana so i called him like three or four times he didn't return my call which was not uncommon you know you're pestering them to get a game and they got all kind of people calling them right so it's competitive. So it's if there's another school in the state like McNeese, which is also in the Southland Conference, as Nickel State is, yeah. are they trying to undercut and say, hey, we'll play for 350 Well, everyone knows what their kind of quota or budget is. But, yes, it is competitive. And they'll play schools that are – they won't play like a North Dakota State that might actually be able to beat them. But you also can't be too horrible either. So they want to play a team that's middle of the road in FCS or in the upper echelon. But anyway, so this guy, uh, his name is Josh Brooks. At the time, he was senior associate AD. I sent him two king cakes, and he calls me the day that he got them, and he's like, hey, Brandon, you just sent me two king cakes? I said, yeah, I sent you two king cakes. He said, man, this is awesome. Everybody in the office loves me. He's like, what future date you want to look at? And so, wow. so I got a 500, I think at the time it was like $550,000 game, that we actually bust to, so it was, let's say, 500K profit. I got that game off of two king cakes because he was from Louisiana. <laughs> so it was little things like that that you had to separate yourself to get in the game. So I still stay in touch with him. Josh Brooks is now the AD at Georgia. So he's now the head guy in charge. He's a big guy over there. And a little tidbit about that game, that was – is Kirby Smart's their coach, right? What's the, uh, yeah. Kirby Smart's first game was against Nickel State University. Nickel State University had a freshman starting quarterback, which Chase Forcade, who's like the guy in New Orleans who, you know, John Forcade's his, his uncle, very well known. He was John a fre- Forcade played with the Saints. With the Saints. So Chase went into 95,000 screaming fans and took Georgia to the fourth quarter, and we were up. You could hear a pin drop in the fourth quarter when Nickel State University was up. What was the score, 24 to – 17 maybe 24 17 and we nearly beat them we lost 26 24 is that right something yeah it was like a two-point game yeah i was at a funeral and couldn't stop looking at my phone because i saw that we were taking them down to the wire 
And, of course, it was like, who is this freshman kid that we have recruited yeah. to play quarterback? And I'm sure if you schedule this game that far in advance, you can tell 4K, like, hey, we've got Georgia on the schedule. We need a guy like you. Yeah, that You helps. use those games to your advantage because they all think they should have been playing there. And what better better way to kind of show if you actually were good enough to play and play against them? And to go between the yeah. edges. And so after the game, 000. he the, Josh sends me a text and he says, man, thank you all for coming. We really appreciate it. But you Don't almost got back. me fired. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. So, that, you know, that was one game we went on the schedule. So that was, that, was, that was actually Georgia. We went on the schedule, Texas A&M. And I scheduled that at a conference. I met the guy at a conference. He had a Texas A&M shirt on. I walked up to him. He's like, I'm so-and-so. I'm the senior associate AD of football. You start talking to him. You follow up. So it's relationships, right? Everything goes back to who you meet. If you follow up with people, which most people don't follow up most with. Most people do not. That's the, that's a differentiator, the persistence, the following up, the grit, right? It helps you in your, your, your family life and in your everyday business life. And so interestingly enough, LSU did not want to play us because we weren't good enough. And Verge Osbury at the time was the football guy, and I probably called him for four years straight. He wouldn't return my call. Finally, I got him on the phone, and he said, Rutley, you're just not good enough. When you win six games, call me. So we won six games, and I called him. (laughs) (laughs) So we were able to get that game scheduled, and that was in like maybe 2016, 17. And you said guarantee. So this game was to be played in 2020, correct? 2020, and it was canceled because of COVID. But a guarantee is a guarantee. Do you still get that money? It is. There's like a force majeure, like a like a clause in the contract that says if you don't play, then you don't have to pay it. So that actually became more magnified once COVID hit and all these games got canceled. But it's not like when you're the smaller school and you're signing their contract, it's kind of almost you take what you're given. It's not like you can negotiate. Yeah, you can negotiate terms on a contract, but... Why would a Georgia be willing to give you $550,000? Why not give you 200000 Because that's the going rate. Okay. That's the going rate. Uh, they'll pay FCS schools, you know, five hundred, six hundred thousand 600000 right now. They'll pay FBS schools, so the higher level, they'll pay them a million, a million and a half. Okay. So, like, if, they, if, if Georgia was wanting to play UL Lafayette or Tulane, they would get a million, million and a half for their games. Whereas, like, FCS, you get a little bit less. And so is it that money that enables you to build up your program? Because we've had a lot of success yeah. at Nickel State with the football program, Southland Conference Championships. And yeah. It, it comes from a lot of the infusion of cash generated from playing some of these bigger schools. Absolutely. And so the way the budgets work is there's state monies, revenues that you get for your athletic budget. There's student fees. Everybody pays an athletic fee to a certain amount. There's fundraising dollars, and that you can raise as much as you possibly could want to raise for different projects or salaries or whatnot. Or there's game guarantees, and so the two sports that can make the most money is football and basketball, men's basketball. You can play those game guarantees to generate a significant amount of money for your budget. And the FCS schools... That's where you have to play those games because, mm. I mean, your budget is based off of that significant amount of revenue. Give me an example of a big basketball school that we played against that was a pretty big payday. North Carolina. I mean, that was around 100000 In basketball, you can play six or seven of those if you wanted to. Now, you don't want to load up your schedule too much. You don't want it to affect the morale of, of the guys or you don't want to have too many losses. 
but that's where you can make a lot of revenue. You know, between seventy-five and a hundred thousand for a game in basketball. Did you bus to North Carolina? Mm, no, they flew to North Carolina. Mm. We flew there. Also went up to Philadelphia, right? Yeah, we played Villanova. We played Louisville. Just the last couple of years. I'm heavily involved in our basketball program as an alumni, and so we stay in touch with the coaches and we're involved in the team and trying to help them raise money. And so I kind of know all of our scheduling coming up this year that I can't release yet, but we're playing some big schools and it's all over the country and we travel with the team every once in a while to go to those games. But you you play those big schools. It's actually a recruiting tool for you too because what player, everyone thinks they can go to the NBA, right? Everybody thinks they can play professionally. So they want to play against North Carolina. They want to play against LSU. They want to play against those bigger schools. Oh, yeah. Because they didn't get recruited by them. Absolutely. Yeah, one of the highlights of playing college baseball was playing against LSU. They have 7,500 fans even when they're playing us on a Tuesday night. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. How does it work when small schools start to have success, but they want to be able to retain their coaches? It's tough. I imagine they don't have the funds to pay a coach quarter million dollars a year. Do you secure funds from donors? How does that work? So that's the toughest part of the job. With success comes a big price tag, right? So you there's a there's the chase, right? You're you're at you're here and you're trying to get to the top of the mountain and you get there. So what happens after that? After that, everybody's trying to steal your coaches. Your assistant coaches are taking other jobs other places. And so if there's in athletics, if you, you have a lot of success, you have to be rewarded, and you're rewarded financially. And so a lot of the revenue that comes from the salary supplements is through private funds. And so you have to build those relationships with donors, key stakeholders, get them locked in for X amount of years to sign a coach onto a contract. We did that with Coach Rebo, who's the football coach at Nichols, and we did it when he came on board. And one of the keys to his success is he was, he's been able to retain his assistant coaches for all these years. He's retained them, whereas other coaches in the past would have this big, huge turnover every year. And so because we were able to pay those guys a, a good wage, he got to keep them. And so that's, that's a huge part of it that most people don't see. It's not just the jerseys and the way you travel and the food you eat. It's how much you pay your assistants. And so that can be supplemented from money raised by going to play Georgia or wealthy alumni? That could can... be both, right? So you can do it through game guarantees, and you could do it through private funding. So it's a mix. I have a listener question from Tyler Johnson. You dig? He played at uh, Nichols on the Southland Conference championship team, defensive lineman. He said... In a year when the men's and women's basketball team, softball team, and the football team all won a conference championship or won the conference tournament, which championship run did you enjoy being part of the most? So I'm a basketball guy, right? So I enjoyed the basketball you know, regular season championship. Obviously, because I hired I hired the coach who we who brought in, I enjoyed that as an alumni. I would say, and I mean this is going to sound bad with the people who know me or are going to be listening to this. The most rewarding one to me was football, and it was because we were we didn't win a game the year before Coach Rebo started, and zero games, zero games. We went over eleven, 
I mean, it was 12, I think 0 for 12. And you had no fans. You had no support. And when you don't have no fans and no support for the South, we're football-oriented, right? When you don't have any support, it deflates the whole program. So you have to create a plan. And so we created a plan before Rebo even came on board to fund the program to the median salaries and recruiting budget and just different things that normally we didn't pay too much attention to before. Not that we didn't pay too much attention, but we couldn't afford to. And we said, hey, we're going to do this, and we're going to set this guy up for, for better than the previous coaches. And we saw that from the beginning where he won a couple. I think he won three games his first year, and then he won six, and then he moved or I think it was four and then six, something like that. But he did it, and he did it in a methodical way, and he followed it, and he ultimately won a conference championship. And now I think we're like three conference championships into it. And we did it all the way from the bottom, right? And football is 100-and-something people. Basketball is 12, 12 players, maybe 15 if you count walk-ons. One game-changing player can go from worst to first. Football takes a whole lot more. And so now when I go to the stadium and there's 10,000 people in the stands, I feel like I was a part of that because we hired him, we gave him some baby steps to get him where he needed to be. And even when I wasn't there, they called me out of the bullpen to help raise money for Rebo to keep him and retain him. So that was a pretty rewarding thing to get a call when you don't even work there anymore to say, hey, man, we need your help. Can you help us raise money to keep this guy? And so I did that. Pro bono? Uh, pro bono, pro bono, because I just love doing it. But but next time, he's going to get a 10% uh, Yeah, take. next time, yeah. <laughs> you want to do some fun questions? Yeah, let's do it. Social media, net negative or net positive for society? We've talked about this periodically through this conversation. I'm going to say net negative. And I'm going to say it because there's some psychological you know, subliminal things that we just don't know that are being caused. You know, if you ever watch The Social Dilemma, on Netflix, you know, kind of goes into how we're just being psychologically trained to do certain things. And just a lot of negative things come from social media. There is some positives. Obviously, the business world has become more connected and you can find out who people are through LinkedIn and whatnot. But I'd say overall, it's negative. Is not wanting something just as good as having it? By the way, I noticed the microfacial expression you made when I asked that question. Were you hoping that I wouldn't ask that question? I was. <laughs> I was. You were hoping that I wouldn't? Uh, yeah, I don't want to answer that question. <laughs> I'm joking. So You I'm had all, to expect it. I'm all about the chase. Being a regular listener. Yeah, I, I know you ask that question a lot, and it's a confusing question. <laughs> but I'm all about the chase, right? And I think you always need something to chase. So I'm going to say not... Not having it, I guess. Were you aware that your face betrayed your feelings when I asked that question? No, I wasn't. Isn't that interesting? It is crazy. Aren't you glad to know that? Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. <laughs> Many people don't, and, and it surprises me that people don't realize this. So I have quite a few people that are close to me that I've had these discussions with, and they don't know that their face betrays their true feelings. And I find that fascinating because... I've always been aware of what my face is doing and for the most part can control it, or at least I like to think that I can. So part of emotional intelligence and, and success is being able to show the face that you want to show. We all wear different masks at different times, right? 
So uh, that's so interesting. But generally, those who are most sincere, and this is kind of knocking myself, but those who are most sincere, no, I shouldn't say that. No, because that's not true. I guess what it tells me is that you're genuine. Like the fact that I saw a flash of disappointment tells me, well, this is a, this is an honest guy, even though you didn't know. I mean, it was ever so slight, but I see these sort of things in slow motion because I, I don't know. I, maybe it's because I'm a good listener, but I pay attention to those things. It's fascinating, right? Yeah. I think I'm going to cut what I just said, but that will be helpful for you to know in the future. It was like, is not wanting something just as good as having? And you went... It was like ever so subtle, and and when I pay attention to that most is when I share good news with friends, mm -hmm. because you want to know who's happy for you and who's not. That is so important. And I've cut people in the last six years since I retired because they were jealous and resentful of me, not happy for me. Fascinating. If you could spend two weeks anywhere in the world and money's not an object, where would you go? I think I would hire you to tour me through europe that's and, a good and idea eastern europe because i know that's where you your expertise lies in the place that you like the most and I, I like history a lot and i yeah i love going to exotic beaches and whatnot but i i would like to tour that area and see how it's you always say it's timeless you know it's like still like it's stuck back in the day and you know what better way to see it than have someone who's done it a bunch yeah, because I'm giving up seven, eight days of my life, I do charge a lot for that. But I've done done it with a few groups, and it is so amazing. And I, I, I hate to hype things up because it's me. But if even if it's not me, if you can find someone who knows the area to give you a personalized tour, there's not a cooler experience that you could have in this world just because of the uniqueness of that area and the history and the communism and the polarity between the sexes and the cobblestone and the cathedrals and the Gothic architecture and the churches that were built in the 14th century. It's just incredible. The trains, the language, the older people not liking the fact that you're there. You know, our parents couldn't go to that part of the world. It was behind the Iron Curtain. I cannot stress enough, emphasize enough how much that we need to visit that area because I'm afraid it's going to be westernized soon. So that would, that would be where I would want to go for a couple weeks. Good choice. Yeah. And I'm talking about Vienna, Budapest, Prague, Bratislava, potentially Bucharest, which is in Romania. So most of those cities I just mentioned are considered Central Europe, but it's Central Eastern Europe. Highly, highly recommend it, and it's affordable. You're a Jeopardy contestant. You get to choose the category for Final Jeopardy. What category are you choosing? Something sports-related. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's say you're a contestant on Jeopardy, and as you enter Final Jeopardy, all three contestants are tied with $10,000. The Final Jeopardy question is, NCAA sports, how much are you wagering? I'm going all in. I'm all in on that question. If the Saints play 16 games this year, how many games will they win? That's a really good question. Who's the quarterback? It looks like it's going to be Winston. That's a tough question. I'm going to go ahead and say nine games and squeak into the playoffs as maybe a wild card. I'm just not as confident in – not that Jameis is not – he's had some stats and he's done well. 
it's going to be interesting to see how we've had Drew Brees for so long, how the team is going to rally around Jameis or uh, Taysen or whoever, whoever's the starting quarterback. I think we just having Brees there is, it's just been that crutch, man. Like even if he wasn't fully healthy or it looked like his arm was going to be weaker, we still won because it was Drew Brees at center. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's a huge amount of confidence. So, mm-hmm. I'm going to say nine games. I hope 11, but I'm saying nine. Okay, so it's Final Jeopardy, and you, all three of you have $10,000. And the winner won't be announced for six months when the season is over. And the Final Jeopardy question is, how many games will the Saints win this year in 2021 should they play a full 16-game schedule? Well, your answer is going to be nine. How much of the 10000 are you wagering? Man, that's a tough question because I, I think they have the defense and the offensive line and the running backs to be an 11-win season, 11, maybe 12. But the uncertainty of the quarterback, I'm thinking on a, on a question like that where I'm just uncertain, maybe half of it, say 5,000. Wouldn't you think that the other two guys, assuming they're guys, would also bet 5,000 and – aren't you considering that they would likely answer 8 or 10 or 9? Do you have to get it exactly right? Is that the – how does it work? I mean, so I'm going to say yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, I guess, I guess we're either playing to go all in, right? Or Well, I think what makes it an interesting question is that in all likelihood they'll win 7, 8, or 9 games, I, I think. Yeah. And you might want to do 5,000 in one – because you think, well, the other guy's going to bet half. Yeah. You're given an opportunity to have lunch with Drew Brees, but it's going to cost you $10,000. Do you do it? No. How much would you be willing to pay to have lunch with Drew Brees? I would say $500, maybe 1000 at the most. Okay. But then I would probably invite a friend who would pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's some creative thinking. So tomorrow you get a call and they say, hey, Drew Brees wants to have lunch with you. Uh, He's only asking for $450, and uh, he says it's going to go to a a good cause. Would you not go? Yeah, I would go. I would go for $450. So the answer is not $500. Yeah, that's that's a good point. That would be the max that I would pay. But if it's going to a good cause, I'm a charity guy, so if it's going to good, it makes me feel a little bit better that it's going somewhere depending on what charity it is well you would think it has to right i mean yeah. he's got a hundred million dollars i mean he's not, yeah. he's not probably not going to take his family out to dinner but even if he did i mean i don't know yeah i'm just i'm not starstruck on anything like that but I, I would like to pick his brain on leadership and you know how he persevered through just different challenges in his career oh yeah i'd have to give it serious thought yeah and i think the, the right question after you ask a, a question like that is always okay you say 500 is the most you will pay. Actually, I screwed up the question because I'm, I'm supposed to go higher, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my bad. I fucked that up. Okay, I'm going to have to cut that. That's what I get for trying to ask new, thoughtful questions. <laughs> no, what is your favorite baseball or basketball card that you've ever owned? I have a Nolan Ryan rookie card. And I actually have a lot of really good baseball cards from back in the day. And my brother has them. And I'm thinking about just letting my nephews, I have, uh, my brother has two boys, 
kind of letting them have my cards because they play baseball. My daughters don't – well, one of them plays softball. But I don't know. I just figure we keep it in the family, and I've got, you know, Bo Jackson. But I think Nolan Ryan probably just stands out the most to me. Cause he was just so good, just an overpowering pitcher, and he played for so long, and he's just gritty. And There's a really good video that I sent to Coach G. Cassard not too long ago. He was sitting – it looked like a dinner, and he's sitting with his wife and maybe 30 other people. So maybe there's six tables of five or five tables of six. And they're just shooting off questions at him. And he gives some of the most insightful answers about facing certain players or you know, what Pete Rose told him after he struck him out, things like that that are – inside baseball sort of stuff that I just loved. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. You know what's amazing is some of the most legendary players in any sport, when they have that photographic memory like that and they can remember like certain pitches and what the count was or what he was going through, I mean, that that's just extraordinary for somebody to be able to remember that. And I, that's what separates, I think, the, the, the high achievers from like the great ones. The great mm-hmm. ones could, you know, like Michael Jordan could probably tell you every, you know, step of every championship he went through and what he was going through and – yeah. I mean, those guys are just – there's a few players like that, man, are just way far in advance on just their thought process, how they approach the game that they played, the preparation, like mama mentality, right? Kobe was just a stone-cold killer, man. He didn't care who you were. He was going at you. How did Kobe's death affect you? Man, it was a shock. You know, I wouldn't say it affected me like, like everybody else. It was surprising, right? And I, I didn't – probably understand how sad I was how much I looked up to him as a player and his preparation but when he died it was like whoa Kobe died man that's a big deal and but it didn't it didn't affect me like I wasn't crying on the streets and doing all kind of things and but it but it was like life is short right life is short and if Kobe could die anybody could die so causes you to think about your own life when something like that happens and Four girls. Four girls, man. And he only, four girls, and he only flew helicopters because he wanted to be able to take his kids to and from school. So he knew that if he started to fly helicopters from, I guess he's from, he was living in the OC to where they practiced with the Lakers, that he knew that he can get there very quick and he can get back in time to be able to pick his daughter up from school because he knew how important that it was. So he became accustomed to flying helicopters because of his daughter. They were going 180 miles an hour when they hit the side of that mountain. If somebody had the photos of him post-mortem, did you hear about the, I guess it was the EMS guys had photos in their phones of the charred remains? Would you want to see them? No. Really? Most I people I ask that question say yes. I don't like gory stuff, mm-hmm. and I don't like to remember people like that. And so I'm not deathly afraid of it, but I don't like going to funerals. I don't know if many people that do like going to funerals, but I, I'm not a fan of an open casket and all those things because that's how you remember most people when you when they pass away. It's how they looked in the casket, right? That's so true, and they're made up. And- yeah. I do not like going to funerals for that reason. And I wouldn't want to see that because that would be the what would stick out to me in my mind. So you were raised without God. When did you 
make that change? No, I was actually raised with God. I was a Catholic, and I I went to, I mean, I I wasn't raised in uh, private school, but I was went to public school, and we were active in church, and I was a Catholic. But for a time, when you go to college, you know, I lost track of that, and then ultimately married my wife. She was heavily religious, and she went to private school. All of our kids are going to private school, so I, I just you have to work on your own relationship with God, right? I mean, that's just between you two. And I think I've need some improvement in that area and I've worked towards it. And there's a, a Jesuit retreat that I go to every year. I just went to it a couple of weeks ago. It's called Manresa. And you spend, you know, basically three days not talking. There's teachings, you know, where it's just you and you pray and you do all these things. And so that's one small step that I've taken to make sure that my relationship with God is strong and and that I'm always praying and trying to get better. What's the hardest part of that retreat? The hardest part of it is not talking, and you would not believe how tired you are from talking all the time. So when you don't talk for three days, you come back energized. So you spend a, you expend a lot of energy when you're talking and you're doing things all the time. And when you're meditating, as you probably know, I know you do meditating a good bit, and you don't talk, you feel energized and recharged. So I come back from that retreat, man. I'm like jazzed up, ready to go, like ready to, and I journal there and try to figure out ways to get better, you know, in my personal life and professional and, but most importantly with God. And it just makes you energized when you spend a little bit more time in solitude. It's crazy. Can you have communication with your wife and kids? You're not supposed to pick up your phone. Actually, I leave my phone in the room pretty much the whole weekend. So, like, during the day, I don't communicate back and forth, but at night, I'll text my wife, and my retreat's going good. She doesn't expect it, but they don't want you to have your phone with you. I don't call them. You said you could improve in that area with your relationship with God. In in what way could you, do you feel like you need the most improvement? Consistently, mm. consistently praying, and I think everybody talks to God, and they always want something, Right. Yes, that's, that's kind of like human nature. So you only want to talk to God when something bad happens or you need something. And I think it's you can talk to God anywhere. And I just need to do a better job of talking to him on a consistent basis. You know, and just it, gratitude, right? I think when you look at what you don't have and look at all the problems, you you know, certain people are unhappy in their lives because they view life as what I don't have or what others have and I want as opposed to looking at it from a lens of gratitude. Look at all the things that I have. Man, I have a great family, a beautiful wife, three great kids, a great job, a lot of friends. So if you switch your mentality and think about all the things that you do have, talk to God in a thankful way, I think that's meaningful. Absolutely. First person that comes to mind when I say funniest man alive. Chappelle. Are you going to see him in September? He's coming to New Orleans. Is he? No, probably not. With the whole COVID thing and everything, I probably won't be out in many, you know, public gatherings like that. But I would, I would like to see him perform personally, not just on HBO or Netflix. Yeah, I think he's one of those people. Like one day, we'll say, "Well, did you ever get to see him while he was alive?" Like Kobe or the Beatles or yeah, whoever. That's a good point. That's a good. Are you going? Yes. I think it's September 4th. My brother is taking me. Awesome. Yeah. First person that comes to mind when I say I want to be successful like him. This is going to sound kind of corny, but Matthew McConaughey. 
and not because he's an actor and because he's good looking and all those things, but I think he has a great outlook on life. And I can relate to him because he has a quote that he says he spoke to, I think he won the Oscars or something. And, you know, he was talking about how grateful he is, right? So it's all, I always try to be grateful. And something that stuck out with me that he said, he said, there are three things to my account that I need each day. One of them is something to look up to. Another is something to look forward to. And another is someone to chase. And so he talks about how someone asked him, who is his hero? And his hero is 10 years from now. Him? His, yes, his own self. And when he gets to be, you know, so let's say he was asked that when he was 20. And so when he got to 30, they're like, who's your hero? Well, my hero is when I'm 40. And so if you always try to get better and better every day, you're never going to catch that guy. You're never going to catch your hero. But you need something to strive for and something to get better because that's what you do. You don't, you can't settle for just where you are. You always have to improve yourself. And so I would say the way his outlook on life really kind of sticks out to me. And I love hearing him speak. I'm with you. And I feel sorry for people who can hear a talk like that one and not have it inspire them. And I know quite a few people like that. It's, it's sad. In their prime, who are you taking on a dinner date? Christy Brinkley or Kathy Ireland? I would say Brinkley. Halle Berry or Lisa Bonet? Halle Berry. Halle Berry or Christy Brinkley? Halle Berry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, overrated or underrated? Jimmy Fallon? Overrated. Jay Leno? Overrated. Adam Sandler? Underrated. Dave Portnoy? Underrated. Dave Chappelle? Underrated. Joe Rogan? I'd say underrated. Clint Schechtsnyder? Underrated as a human. (laughs) If you were hosting a dinner party at your house and money were no object... Are you having four, six, or 12 guests? 12. I like more, more people. Do you find that it's hard to communicate in that situation, though? Like, are you typically trying to hold court where 11 people can hear you, or are you having a one-on-one conversation, and there's probably five other one-on-one conversations going on? So the way I think about those instances, I'm not the one who wants to be the center of attention and have to give a toast. I like company, and I want as many friends as I can be together as possible when we go out to dinner. And obviously you don't want to get past 12 because then they won't be able to serve you properly. But I think just being a relationship so valuable to me, the more people that I can have in a dinner setting, the better. And those, those times always stick out to me. Yeah, I mean, it's great to go have four friends or six, and if you want to have an intelligent conversation, obviously you want to have a smaller party, but I'm – all about having a gathering with a lot of people. Did relationships keep you in Louisiana? And did you realize that you would be staying in Louisiana long-term when you decided to go the athletics administration route? Because if you're going to be a coach or in athletics of any sort, you're going to have to move. Yeah. So when you got into it, were you thinking that you'd be willing to move the family? So when my wife and I first got together... It was right before I started at Nichols, and we never really had to talk as far as... Started the job working at Nichols? Yeah, so before I started working at Nichols, me and my wife got together, we got married, and then I started at Nichols after that, okay? So I wanted to obviously move up in my career, and we never had the talk of, would you be willing to move? 
I was willing to move, but she wasn't willing to move. So when we started to have kids here in South Louisiana, you got this big support system of family, you know, that helps you take care of your kids and friends who stay. And so we never really had that talk. And then when I got further in my career and I started to get pursued by some schools to go to some, have some different opportunities to move up, it really became evident to me that she didn't want to move. So it was really only one job that I could have got, and it was at Nichols. And so the deal was if I didn't get that job, then I was going to look to do something else. And so the job came up. I didn't get it. I ultimately decided to switch careers. You interviewed for it? I did not interview for it. One of the reasons why I left, uh, obviously I told you that if I didn't get it, I was going to be leaving. But one of the main reasons why I left was because I was lied to that I was going to get an opportunity to interview for it. And once I'm a very trusting person and I'll run through a wall for you, but once you, once the trust is violated, I can't work hard for, for a person that lies to me. So look, ultimately it ended up being the best thing that could ever happen for me. But when I realized that I wasn't able to move around, like you're supposed to be able to do in athletics, cause I should be an AD right now. I should be an AD at an FCS school getting ready to go and try to catapult to an FBS, lower-level lower, lower FBS. When was the FBS-FCS moniker applied rather than 1A and 1AA? Yeah, I think that was in the mid-2000s. Maybe that, that changed, and they just rebranded it. Was that stupid? No, because I think there was a lot of confusion about 1AA and Really? 1A. You don't think it's more confusing now, huh? Mm, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I never do. Really I thought think about it's, it that much. I still call them formally 1A and formally 1AA because the FBS, FCS confuses me more. You get to eat at one last restaurant in New Orleans before meeting St. Peter at the Gates. Where are you going? Man, that's a tough one. I'm going to probably say, that's Galatoire's. Galatoire's, what kind of restaurant is that? It's a French cuisine, like New Orleans style. You know, Creole restaurant. If somebody dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, a million, what would you do with it? I would pay off every debt that I have and invest the rest. What sort of debts do you have? Uh, have a house note, and that's about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's about it? Is that that's all? That's about it. Yeah, there's a, there's a, we owe a couple payments on our my wife's vehicle. That'll be paid off shortly. So I would pay that off, but it's not anything to speak of. It's not, we don't have any, I don't have any credit card debt. We don't have any major, I just have my house note. And so I would pay that off and that would be, from there, I think I would be almost financially free. I'd have everything paid off and then I would probably have enough to invest a significant amount of that. How would you invest it? I would definitely, I think I would do a taxable brokerage account. So that way I'd have the flexibility to be able to peel that money out for the short term. But I would get into real estate investing, and I'm just not sure what direction. I don't have any real estate holdings right now outside of my house, but it's the, kind of the next step for me is do I get a commercial property? Do I get a residential? Is that residential single family or is it a duplex or whatever it is? So I would say short term I would invest it in a tax, taxable brokerage, but I would probably look to start diversifying my portfolio into some real estate holdings okay so that's roughly i assume 750 you didn't mention the 529 that you have for your daughters 
would you contribute to those with that 750000 I would. Now that you bring that back uh, up to me, I would. Okay. I would put, I would probably, I would need to think about that and calculate. I know what I'm going to need for them. Roughly, you so yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> How much? So I think it's going to be about if they go to Nichols, it'll be about twenty thousand a year, fifteen to twenty thousand if you include living. Now look, that's my daughter's ten, so that's eight years. So I'm going to need roughly eighty thousand or so for for her, and probably ninety for the middle one, and a little bit more for the younger one. So I would have to backtrack and formulate how much I would need to put in each of those five twenty nines to get to that that end goal. And I would probably, now that you bring it up, I would, mm-hmm. I would do that. Okay. So then you have 600 left, let's say, okay. just to use round numbers. You said you want to invest in a taxable brokerage account, which would be like a, well, pretty much any brokerage, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, Vanguard. Are you buying index funds? Yeah. VTSAX. Okay. <laughs> and, Keeping it simple. Okay. So let's say, what, 300 of that, 600, you put in VTSAX, and then you buy one real estate property or three or two? I don't think I want to get crazy with it. You know, we have we have in common friends that are just leveraging everything, and I don't ever want to get to that point. I want to get to maybe, maybe a, let's say a million overall by the time I'm finished with it. You know, to be able to have maybe a I don't know how many properties. Depends, obviously, if I get into commercial or if I get into residential, a lot's going to tell how many properties that I have. I think I would want to diversify my portfolio and just having some residual income. Single family homes, you'd be a landlord managing the properties yourself? Probably. Probably, yeah. Probably. You tweeted recently that if you could go back in time to 2016, you would buy 100 Bitcoin. Let's say you had done that, or you could go back in time, make that transaction, and then you're back here today. Would you hodl all of it, or would you sell some of it? I think I would sell some of it, even though I believe there's a huge upside. So I have, I'd say, about 5% of my portfolio is Bitcoin. Right now? Yeah, right now. Oh, good for you. Yeah, so I have, I have some Bitcoin. and I've. When did you buy it? October of last year. Oh, good. So pretty good return on it. Yeah. What'd you buy at seven thousand, eight thousand? Um, it's at forty something now. Man, I don't. I think it's maybe um in the last year it's a thirty percent return or so so far. Beautiful. I didn't get it at the lowest point. Bitcoin today is at forty six thousand one hundred and twenty five. We're recording on Wednesday, August eleventh. If I gave you a hundred thousand dollars and forced you to invest it in one of these three companies. Spotify, Airbnb, or Lululemon, which one would you invest it in? Airbnb. Same amount of money, but your options are Apple or Amazon. Which are you putting $100,000 into their stock? Amazon. You're given $100,000, but this time you get to divvy it up. But you have to invest it in Costco, Lululemon, and Nike. How are you investing the 100000 so you have to believe in your brands that you invest in, I guess, if, you can, if you're going to invest in a single stock. Yeah, and I'm forcing you to invest without doing the research, right. really, on their financials. Yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go all in on Costco, just because I don't shop at Lululemon and Nike. I'm an Adidas person, so. Do your kids have to wear masks to school? They do. That is a... 
Catholic school rule? So I believe it's a state mandate, if I'm not mistaken. I'm pretty sure it's a state mandate. If not, it's definitely coming down from the school systems. Okay. Yeah, they all have to wear masks. And how do you feel about that? So I think about things from a different perspective, like financially, right? So last year, our kids wore masks the whole year going to school, when they went to school. And we didn't go to the doctor's office one time. So if you have young kids, they get sick and they go to school and they get each other sick. And so this was probably the first time in the last 10 years that we haven't been to the doctor's office. So I think the kids didn't get, you know, RSV, they didn't get the flu, or they didn't get these little common colds because they had masks on. So I think it helped in a sense that they didn't spread around germs as much, which is kind of crazy to think of it from that perspective. But I'm not one of these that just says, oh, they're trying to take over our freedoms. There's no way we should have be forced to wear a mask and all this. I'm, I like to look at things that I can control myself, and I can't control that. Somebody else controls it, so let them worry about it. If you believed that COVID was unleashed deliberately on the world, what should be done about that? Man, that's a tough question, right? If it was unleashed, that would mean that someone purposely killed millions of people. So it would have to be a pretty significant penalty. What is that penalty today? You know, is it, you know, you respond back with the same kind of warfare? That's not going to do anything. Well, it is going to do something. I mean, it's it's going to destroy the world even further, right? I mean, it's going to kill more people. So I I think uh, not to bring back Donald Trump uh, too much, and I'm Republican and— you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that. I, I don't de- agree with his delivery on the way he delivered things. I think he could have been a little bit more tactful. I think his principles were, were good in how he approached things. And I think he was really starting to get to them because we're, I mean, I think we're talking about China potentially being, I think that's what the news stations are saying as a possibility. I, I believe that his hard stance on tariffs and Uh, taxing the imports and trying to stop the intellectual property theft of all the U.S. companies. I think he started to take a hard line on that, and I think that that would have the greatest impact if they were the culprits. And I'm not saying that they did or not unleash that. I hope they didn't. But if they did, that would probably be a way that you can retaliate without the world crumbling. You had no problem sharing that you were Republican. You live in a heavily red state. Yeah. I would imagine that Democrats would feel the same way if we were in a small town in upstate New York saying, I'm a Democrat. I find that so interesting. If you were a business person in Houston, I don't think you would have said that. Right for fear of alienating half of your customers, but you're probably fully aware that 99% of your customers are also yeah. Republican. Well, I mean, I have I have clients, you know, all over the country in different areas, and, you know, that's not saying that I don't understand. Like, I'm more understanding of where, where Democrats are coming from, right? But it's not you, it's them that you would be concerned about. Right, so... Not understanding where you're coming from. Correct, and that's a, that's... If they don't want to do business with me because of my political beliefs, but that's not something that I, you know, in business that I'm ever, they always tell you in business and never talk about, you know, politics or religion, right? That's like two no-nos. You learn that on the first day of sales school. Hmm. You know, that's not something that I ever talk about with my clients. And 
yeah, maybe maybe me saying that on a podcast, but I'm not in fear of losing a client over the fact that I'm a Republican. It doesn't mean that I'm marching on the Capitol or anything crazy like that. <laughs> it just means that I'm I'm a fiscally conservative person. I don't believe we should spend beyond our means, and I'm just I think that we're spending money now in this country without knowing the full consequences of what's going to happen, you know, 20, 30 years from now. My grandparents are Democrats and most of the Louisiana back in the day was like 80 or 90 percent Democrats. And so that's flip-flopped over the last 50 or so years. So I still have some of those values, but I would just say I'm a fiscally conservative person. And that's just the heart. You know, I believe in free enterprise and free trade and less restrictions. And in, in my opinion, when you give business the ability to prosper, so less taxes on them, they will create more jobs. They will buy more goods and services and people will have a better living wage. If you tax them more and you hamstring their growth, then that's going to have a negative effect on the average person. I think that our way out of any poverty type of situation is through the ability to have a good job and the ability to earn a livable wage. And I think if you hamstring businesses, that goes against what you're actually trying to do. I don't believe you should give somebody something because just give them without without having to work for it because I don't think they will appreciate it as much as if they actually worked for it. Do you have a favorite book? I read all John Gordon. I don't know if you ever heard of John Gordon. Sure. I read all of his books. The first one that I started off with was The Energy Bus, and that one's a very simple read, and it's basically this guy's down in the dumps. He get his, his car broke down, so he had to get on his bus, and the bus driver lady was bubbly personality always happy and he instead once his car was fixed instead of getting back on the bus i mean instead of driving his car to work he continued to get on the bus because this lady would have a different outlook and positive outlook on life so it's just a very simple read basically tells you to be appreciative of everything and value the things you have look look at life through a different lens don't look at it from everything going wrong be more appreciative than because you were involved with athletics at Nickel State and they had the passing academy there every year that the Manning brothers host, did you get to have some interaction with those guys? Yeah, I've had a chance to meet Peyton, Eli, John Gruden was probably the best, most intense, not most intense guy that I had a chance to meet. All of those, so they, it's all of the top high school quarterbacks in the country that go to their universities. They are camp counselors you know, for this thing. So like uh, just Matt Barkley, Andrew Luck, like all of those guys came through there and you just had a chance to interact with them. And they're all young, young people, man. And, you know, before you know it, they're in the NFL and they're getting paid millions and millions of dollars to play, play a sport. So mm -hmm. it was interesting. I don't really get starstruck like most people just cause I was always in that environment and I wasn't like, Oh, there's Peyton Manning. I'd be like, Hey, what's up Peyton? You know? Do you think part of that is the fact that you're a 5'9 white guy that played basketball and you probably know deep down that had you been born 6'3, 6'4, that you could be just as good as many of those guys at your respective sport? Yeah, I mean, I think about that sometimes. And what if I was born taller? Uh, yeah, yeah. Because I had I had the, uh, the, the mindset, right? And that's like, like 90% of the battle, right? Because you have some people who are the most talented people in the world, 
that just don't have the work ethic. And if you have the right mindset, you could. So, yeah, I mean, but again, I, I, I just like more, man, since I've probably turned 30, 35, just been more forward thinking and not really like thinking about like what I could have did in the past and what if this would have happened. You know, I'm more of like, hey, man, I'm let me try to get, you know, better for the future. And I don't know, just a different. Yeah, it reminds me of the old adage that is we all have two lives and the second one starts when you realize that you only get one. Yeah. That's what I'm reminded of when you say that. I always pick older people's brains and I say older people. I don't mean anything bad about people that are in their 50s, 60s and 70s. But they have a different outlook on life because they're on the backside, right? And so I always pick their brains like, man, what would you do differently? Every single one of them says, I would spend more time with my family and less time at work. So I take that to heart, man. I mean, that's I've dramatically shifted. And look, I love to work. I get up every day ready to go and conquer the day, kick ass. But it puts things into perspective when you know that your time is ticking, Every single event that you don't go to later on in life, I'm going to wish I went to that. And so oh, all the people that I talk to that are in that age range, they're like, man, I wish I would have not worked so much. I wish I'd have spent more time with my kids. And so that just sticks out with me so much. The thought came to me the other night. We were playing categories. It was my wife and I, my mom and stepdad. And it got to be about 930. And everybody decided we all kind of decided that it was getting late and we were tired and we were going to go to bed and a comment that I made was that if one of if something were to happen to one of us these are the times that we would remember and isn't it interesting that something we do every day go to bed is something we're opting for instead of continuing to play this game which is pretty fun it's not like we're working on a, a difficult task or running when coach says to run and you don't know when you're going to stop. So I find it fascinating how often we opt for 30 minutes more of sleep instead of doing something that's fun, but that's how it goes sometimes, you know, and, and categories of course requires some mental energy expenditure. So there's that too. Yeah. You bring it up every once in a while on your podcast, but living in a present, present state right like enjoying the times that you have because you'd be always thinking about you know i'm gonna wake up tomorrow this is what i gotta do or i got this to look forward to and it's like man we're running so fast that we forget like these times with our kids and with our friends like valuable man it's like super important that we just enjoy the time that we have together with our loved ones and friends and whatnot so i don't know so true i mean we've been on this podcast for two hours and 46 minutes wow that is amazing. It does not feel like two hours and 45, 46 <laughs> minutes because we're present state focused. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so time flies. There's a book that one of my coaching clients sent me recently called Flow. And the subtitle is about finding happiness. And it basically equates happiness to flow. When you're in flow state is when you're most happy. And it makes a lot of sense to me because... I'm really enjoying this conversation, and it's I'm in flow. I mean, I'm completely focused. My mind is not elsewhere. It makes total sense. And when are you in more flow than playing sports, right? I mean, that is a serious present state focus. Yeah. 
And I think that speaks to why guys like Michael Jordan, LeBron James can have a photographic memory for particular games and situations because they're so intensely focused on what's happening at that time that it sticks with you. And something else before we cut out I thought was worth mentioning is you mentioned being a walk-on several times. I myself was a walk-on. Friends of ours, Matt Ori, Shane Bodian, who you mentioned. I had lunch with Jason Lasada recently. He was a walk-on, very successful guy, Dustin Malbro. A lot of friends of ours were walk-ons. I don't think it's a coincidence that every one of them has turned out to be happy, successful, productive adults with good friends, good family values, great fathers. Well, Matt's not a father yet, but I'm sure he's going to get there soon. And we stick together and we root for each other and we're happy to see each other succeed. And there's something to be said for that. If you get an opportunity to hire a former walk-on, you're an ignoramus if you don't give that guy a shot. I strongly believe that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before, well, I should ask you, how can people connect with you online, Rutley? I'm on LinkedIn uh, under my name, Brandon Rutley, last name R-U-T-T-L-E-Y. And then I'm on Twitter, so you can find me at Colonel Rutley. So C-O-L-O-N-E-L, Rutley, R-U-T-T-L-E-Y. That's the two places. I, I tweet about a lot of sports. I tweet every once in a while about my kids. And LinkedIn's really all business. So if you, if you want to follow me, follow me on those two uh, platforms. Very good. I joked about you definitely marrying out of your, how does that saying go? You're punching up above your weight class. Is that, how do they say that? How do they say it? You're, I'll punt the I'll punt I'll the coverage. your coverage. Yeah. yeah, you did. But I will say that you're a stud and Georgia did quite well herself. So oh, man. Thank glad you, we're Brad. friends. Thank that. you for being here, dude. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Friends, if you enjoyed this episode, please copy the link and send it to a friend. And if you wish to follow my adventures, I can be found at Instagram and Twitter at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks.